Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is our weekly walk down the garden path of critical social justice. On today's show, I speak with Dr. Naomi Wolf, Rhodes Scholar, writer, and one of the most outspoken liberal voices and critical thinkers in the United States. This is a discussion not to be missed about current discourse, free speech, and how to retake our freedom and liberty. My second guest is Diane Landy, co-founder of Manawahini Korero and a fierce advocate for not only women but Māori. We'll discuss her recent Quillette magazine article and what's going on with Māori politics. We'll round things off with the woke word of the week and this is where I look at the vocabulary, manipulation of language by those in critical social justice. Coming up, my thoughts on the week. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop me a text. Send your comment to Twitter. 2057. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. Check radio. The budget's been released tomorrow. Grant Robinson's dog and pony show where he'll try and convince us that he's the man with a fiscal plan for the coming year. It will be a well-manicured affair with just enough placating, dustings of fiscal sugar and a long overdue belt tightening that will somehow end up being buffed up into a blinding virtuous shine. I swear if he asks the team of five million that we need to achieve this together or words to similar effect, I'll run out of vomit emojis. This budget will be closely scrutinised. It is vital that Robertson strikes the right balance to help sweep the team Marxist, I mean Labour, across the line for a third term. I'm thoroughly bloody sick and tired of all the politicians currently sitting in the House. All they seem concerned about is how do they keep their jobs and maintain their level of comfort to which they've become accustomed. Comfort is what we've all become accustomed to and what I believe is a contributing factor to the current cultural calamity. You'll be amazed at what not only politicians, but everyday people will sacrifice in order to maintain comfort. 
We saw the social experiment firsthand over the past three years. This has been an ethics experiment that so many in the country have failed. We all know who merely jumped on the authoritarian bandwagon and rewarded for their so-called selfless virtue and to this day will defend their comfort with moral fervour. Many more were duped to trust your single source of truth shtick. The sooner we comply, the sooner we get back to comfort. Then we have those who are pressured more directly with mandates and threats. Non-compliance will see comfort as you know it destroyed. The face of kindness came with a punitive grin. Comfort comes in many guises. Financial comfort and security. Professional and career comfort. Social and familial comfort. All of these cherished and not easily relinquished. So I have tremendous respect for those who have sacrificed their comfort in the last three years. And I share the frustration and anger and regret for those forced to make difficult decisions. This is why the budget is so important. Changes here will affect our comfort and is this and this alone that will galvanise people to react. Those who have thought their level of comfort safe may now find themselves squeezed. Still thinking compliance would have kept them comfortable, but waking up to the really startling reality that it will not. Something to really think about come October 14th, is it not? You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to RCR Reality Check Radio. You're with Marie and joining me this morning is Rhodes Scholar, writer, empower of women, host of the Outspoken podcast and champion for freedom and liberty, Dr. Naomi Wolf. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So the art of civil discourse, is it dead? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I hope we're about to have civil discourse. It's definitely, you know, injured. I mean, social media, the combination of social media, cancel culture and AI, which introduces bots and trolls to um, make people feel that ideas are dangerous or that they can't have a civil disagreement, um, has created new challenges that I've never seen before in my lifetime. Um, and, and also algorithms make it impossible for you to necessarily see or find points of view that differ with your own if if what you're doing in, in looking for different viewpoints is, you know, res- restricting yourself to social media. Uh, in, in human space, I think people do a good job, but um, universities are no longer free speech uh, defenders, uh, newspapers are bought and sold. So it, it's a bad time for freedom of speech and civil disagreement. Mm. There's an Auckland professor here that came out uh, with a blog post that's gone very viral in this country in the last uh, week or 10 days or so. And he's critically spoken out about the seismic shift of politics within the academy to the left. Do you think that that's now endemic and can it be fixed? Well, you know, I come from the left. So mm. I until 2020 wouldn't have thought that shifting left you would have thought it was a corrective but now I think horrible things are happening under the guise of the left I actually believe that um communism you know particularly Chinese Communist Party communism is subverting and seeking to alter and destroy Western cultures I include New Zealand and and doing so specifically by flowing money to universities and making sure that some points of view are subsidized and others are dialed down or destroyed 
so one thing I've seen, well, two horrible trends um, at, at universities in the United States, some of the most prestigious universities, including my alma mater, Yale, get more from HHS, uh, Health and Human Services funding from the U.S. government than they do from tuition. So as a result, they literally parrot whatever um, horrific, tyrannical vaccine mandating nightmare that the government insists that they parrot and they have been trafficking their own students. I mean, they're uh, Yale imposed a, a bivalent booster mandate on the whole student population before letting them come back to school. They just lifted it thanks to activism on, on our part, you know, our colleagues. But that really censors speech because people can't raise questions, you know, that that are critical of the funders. And the other thing that is very bad is that China will flow money through cutouts to and even through um, centers of cultural outposts on universities called the Confucius Institutes. And they'll fund um, professorships and so on. I mean, Harvard is a great example. There was a professor at Harvard who was literally a Chinese asset, you know, spying for China. But even without having people actively spy for China, what's happening is that the Western tradition, you know, the canon is being defunded. Grants are not going to, for people to teach Byron and Shelley and, you know, Plato and Aristotle. Um, grants are going only or primarily to uh, disciplines that critique Western culture and that that kind of highlight our divisions and our shortcomings as, as societies. And so as a result, young adults are being thoroughly indoctrinated and they're scared to say things like, you know, well, I think it's important to listen to multiple points of view or I'm not sure, you know, biological men belong in women's sports or anything that that goes against the diktats passed down through these cutouts by the Chinese Communist Party. People are, are done away with reputationally or ostracized or switched off. Um, from networks. So that is definitely happening. And it's really, really bad. Because there is horizontal policing happening across all spectrums, whether it be in medical or the academy. Is tenure even protecting a lot of professors that are trying to speak out? Or is that now becoming an institution in name only? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, in America, anyway, so few positions now are tenured. And the the ones who had tenure have retired, you know, overwhelmingly. So the whole teaching industry is being kind of farmed out to desperately poor graduate students or or uh, untenured, you know, associate professors who have no leverage at all and are terrified and don't depart from the orthodoxy. Even tenured professors, I just have an email from a a scientist who's a professor who's I believe tenured and he's been he's being subjected to an ethics investigation and a retracted paper showing how many people had been injured or killed by the mRNA vaccines and it's a thoroughly accurate peer-reviewed paper um, and he's a thoroughly respectable person and so they're going after him with an ethics inquiry I've seen that a lot I mean uh, Dr. McCullough, I believe, was affiliated with the university. He wasn't teaching, but they go after credentials. They go after licenses. They, I've heard of, of uh, oh, poor Mark Crispin Miller. My gosh, really distinguished pr professor at NYU teaching um, propaganda and media studies. And he's been doing so forever. So he taught a propaganda course on propaganda, and he was talking about COVID messaging and about masking. He literally had a public health 
uh, like committee and they're showing up in every institution in the United States. I wrote about this in my book, The Bodies of Others, who wrote to his students critically of him. And then he had an investigation from his dean and his colleagues. He has tenure. And then he was put on like administrative leave, um, literally for asking the right questions in a course about asking questions. So there are many ways to inhibit academic openness, Mm. even not going that far. Like we were at a protest at Yale to protest this vaccine mandate. And A lot of young adults were very curious and interested, but they were scared to talk to us. And they say that literally it's a CCP style social credit system on some campuses because literally they get switched off if they're like late for a PCR test or if they if they don't comply. It's called being non-compliant. So it's a very non-Western, non-post-enlightenment, non-human rights view of the individual that these poor kids are being socialized into. Here in New Zealand, we did actually go full vaccine certificate passport system. Yeah, so that uh, started December 2021 and ended, I think, April 22. It was interesting. It was exactly that. It was this a form of social credit system and we weren't able, our movements were quite heavily restricted. So my entire family are unvaccinated. What we did discover was a parallel structure, almost like a speakeasy type community, because through lockdowns, they worked so hard to keep you apart. And with through censorship, they work incredibly hard to stop you talking to each other. But we actually found that we needed to go grassroots. And that's when we discovered on the street, the neighborhood street that we live in, it's nearly about one third we're all in the same situation we were in. And we would never have found that if we hadn't walked. Dog walking is how we found this out. Walking the dog and talking to our neighbours when we were told that we weren't allowed to talk to our neighbours. And once we discovered that, it's like, okay, fine. If you're going to impose that, we're going to do this. Thank God. I, I worry about New Zealand all the time. I worry about Australia. There are countries around the world that I worry about. But I, I think New Zealand and Australia were along with Israel and Canada, kind of Petri dishes. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, Jacinta Ardern was insane. Like she was a complete, in my view, psychotic world economic power. Believe me, many of our listeners on this share that view. So you're not alone. <laughs> I don't mean to offend anyone, but she she was among the worst of the worst. And what happened, you know, and, and I love New Zealand and I love Australia. These are some of my favorite places in the world. And to think that this country that was so civilized and so aware of human rights issues, you know, compared to other countries, you guys score very high, or you did pre-2020 on the kind of equality index, and and you were a free open society with lots of points of view. And New Zealanders are, you know, outspoken, sassy, you know, critically thinking people to see the tyranny uh, that was imposed on New Zealand, you know, and I'm going to add Australia, I, I worry a lot because that kind of that kind of rigorous lockdown um, and the social credit system and so on it it's traumatizing, right? It traumatizes people. So I haven't known really if parts of New Zealand society survive the way they had before. So it sounds like you're saying a third is a lot of of people. You know, if there's a third of New Zealanders who are determined to create a parallel society, that's um, that's encouraging. We were kept apart, like we were deliberately kept apart, did actually have to actively hunt out, and it is slowly improving now. What I found most terrifying was how willing people were to comply 
and just give up liberties and freedoms as if they were just the most natural thing in the world to give away. That I personally found chilling because, I mean, America is the home of liberty. You know, you've got this incredible constitution. Did you even sense that across there? In your book, you talked about it and the bodies of others living in New York. I actually found the first few chapters of your book really emotional because you were describing the thought processes and the experiences your husband and yourself were having as you were seeing all of these measures being unfold and the feelings that you were feeling. And I was like, yes, I just remember having exactly those feelings and the disquiet that this yeah. could actually happen somewhere where you believed it would never happen. Are you, how's New York now? It, I mean, it's not back to what it was before. It's dramatically changed um, and it's changed in ways. And by the way, for anyone who doesn't know, the book is called The Bodies of Others, COVID-19 and the War Against the Human. And it is indeed about, you know, that horrible time, which is not behind us completely and, and who was behind it and what the, the goal was. And the goal was to keep us apart, to dissolve human society um, so that we could be reintroduced into a mechanistic WEF slash CCP slash Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, slash WHO global tyranny um, in which a handful of people have all the stuff and no one has the rights and freedoms that we had before except those very top. It's a pretty commonly accepted thesis now on our side of the you know viewpoint spectrum, but at the time. Uh, it it wasn't. So I'm, I'm glad I wrote it when I did. No, New York is not the same. I mean, once, you know, look, the analogies with an abusive relationship are so obvious. Even if your husband or your boyfriend, and I'm using the gender, like I know women can be abusers too, but they're smaller than men. So um, even, even if your husband or boyfriend only beat you up once, that relationship is never going to be the same. You're never going to be not walking on eggshells. And trauma is trauma, even if you're only raped once, you know, that stays with you only, right? That stays with you for your whole life and messes with your sense of trust and your sense of judgment and your sense of self-worth, all the things. So I see all of New York is still traumatized. Our, I'm in New York State right now. Our, our governor, Governor Hochul, we narrowly escaped having CCP style uh, quarantine camp here in New York state. And I know they have them in Australia. They have them in China. I don't know if they have them in New Zealand. You know, that's, that's the end when you're afraid that you'll be dragged off to a quarantine camp or your kids, or you'll be separated from your kids that there's no, no pushing back from that. So I guess what I would say is, um, New York looks kind of like it did before. Like there are people going to the gym and there are people going out to eat and going to clubs, but Americans in the states that were locked down um, or mandated, well, you know, they're not going to be the same in this lifetime. They, and and I'm not going to be the same looking at them because these are people who thought it was fine overnight to strip me of, you know, any social equality, to keep me from entering a restaurant to eat a meal with my kids. They were fine creating a two-tier Jim Crow type system, you know, people from all walks of life to not let me sit at a lunch counter, you know, indoors. I mean, we we know the history of that in the United States, right? And just like you said, New Zealand, what was so shocking is that people complied. I mean, in, in New York City, which is the great melting pot where immigrants and people from all backgrounds have come for freedom, religious liberty, um, you know, racial inclusion, 
for decades and centuries in different cases that that it, in a matter of of weeks it, it would embrace a two-tier society happily say i see your nose cover your nose happily say you can't come in here without your ex, you know excelsior pass which is our version of the vaccine pass that's a trauma that we're not going to to get over on either side mm-hmm. and there are other interesting designated outcomes and i trace these in the bodies of others the whole the built landscape has changed in new york and that's because during those two years when we weren't allowed to assemble we also couldn't meet in landmark committees or you know lobby our elected officials or go to town halls and take our masks off and say what we had to say so a lot of of um unpopular changes or changes that would be unpopular like destroying neighborhoods destroying um the built character of neighborhoods destroying landmarking was that was rushed in for kind of industrial housing for oligarchs children i mean i don't know what they're going to do with it it looks like money laundering but there's just massive it looks like houston now and so it's a completely different city mm-hmm. and all of those little boutiques little restaurants little bodegas little shoe you know shoe stores that were such a fascinating part of the kaleidoscope of walking the streets of new york those are gone because those are the, the intentionally those are the couldn't hold on for a year and a half with no revenue mm. whereas chase and td bank and you know chipotle are, are have rushed right in it's like a vertical mall because they could afford to um wait it out mm. or they say if you don't study history you're doomed to repeat it talk me through israel because i find what happened in israel an absolute conundrum mm. in terms of the compliance and literally being the lab for Pfizer. I mean, what are your views on that? Because I know that Israel is somewhere very close and dear to your heart. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, Israel's been practicing coercing and, you know, controlling populations through through the way it manages the Palestinian population, um, you know, for decades. So uh, the oppressor becomes the oppressed. You know, people, if you're going to keep people in a kind of open air prison, you you've accepted the idea of open air prisons in your national concept and so when health authorities say okay it's time for an open air prison to keep you safe or it's time for us to turn your home into a prison to keep you safe you've already got that idea of um the management of populations you know again trauma i mean i once spoke to a psychologist who specializes in the holocaust and the legacy of the holocaust and she's she was israeli and she was very critical of is, israel's um policies toward palestinians and she said that this was unworked out trauma from the holocaust you know if you don't kind of process your ptsd uh and you know via the oppressor then you you align with the oppressor i think that may be simplistic but you've got a tiny country where people are constantly being told that they're surrounded by enemies right so they're scared mm-hmm. already and then you say okay now the virus is your enemy you're surrounded by the virus uh it, it's the same thing all over the world with little tweaks in history um you know the australians were scared i just got off the a podcast with australians and they talked about how frightened they were you know you're on an island the media is completely creating an echo chamber of fear mm. fear fear you have no way to get access to information to let you know that this is all being exaggerated or distorted. Um so you you do fear, right? You you believe what you're told. And the other thing is the Stockholm syndrome. I think people want to believe that 
they're it's very hard for people to accept that their governments would murder or lie to them. Mm. I agree. You know, I'm Jewish and an essay I haven't written yet, but I will, if I can find the words for it, a lot of the people who are leading the, um, the Liberty movement, in our country come from backgrounds that have genocide in them. Mm. Like Leslie Mnookin's Armenian, um, Dr. Paul Alexander, uh, has, um, I think is of African descent, partly, um, lots of Irish people, Dr. Malone, my husband, Brian O'Shea, Peter McCullough, you know, they had genocide imposed on them by Britain. So I think either if you have trauma and genocide in your background, you're, you're so traumatized, you want to believe it can't happen again, right? Or you recognize it quickly and you mobilize against it. I can't explain why people complied in Israel. I guess I feel a little bit defensive because you guys complied the fuck out of yourselves. No. It, yeah. The reasons you, you know, and, and so did Australia and, and so did Canada. Like these are mm. three prosperous, educated countries. Like what, you know, what are you thinking? I could, I could do the same thing. Right. Mm. So I just want to share that I feel a little bit defensive, but uh, you know, also we don't know how, who was bought. Right. I mm. do think that she's like, Australia and Canada and, and Israel were purchased uh, for experimentation. I know that my husband did a, a deep dive on internal Australian documents legally and found that a Chinese individual was often seen like unnamed, not a not a member of the government, was at you know sensitive internal meetings. So I, I think that other countries have bought you guys up already. Mm. You may not know, or the World Economic Forum via you know, China or via the Bill mm. and Melinda Gates has bought up the Jacinda Ardern's or the mm. Scott Parsons of, of the world or the Justin Trudeau's. China has had a tremendous amount of influence here for a long time. So that, that would not surprise me whatsoever. And I think too, with Israel, in comparison between Israel and New Zealand, both very small countries, there were people like there was in this country trying to ask questions and push back, but the level of censorship and suppression, both there and here, meant that our voices weren't able to be heard in a wider context. I think those voices are starting to sort of come out as more and more data comes out. I just found it quite sad, I think, that fear was such a paralyzing influence. We've got both our countries had a deep trust in the social contract. As you said, we couldn't believe that our governments would, you know, lie to us and, and do these things to us. We trust it because that's in our nature yeah, to trust. I'm going to gently kind of push back a little bit there. There was a, an abundance of data showing that there was something horribly wrong hmm. by November of 2020, you know. Which we never got to see. Exactly. I mean, were you asking for it, right? I mean, I guess the, the reason I'm pushing back a little is hmm. that I think there's no time anymore for the kind of rationalizations that would have worked even recently. Mm. Um, Australians and New Zealanders need to be bringing business to a halt across their countries, um, overthrowing their governments and arming themselves. You know, and I am a peaceful person, but one reason you guys got so badly abused and could be abused again is you don't have a second amendment and, and you don't have a First Amendment, you know, you guys need to pass a proper constitution and you need to prosecute these criminals. And, and I I guess where I'm going is it's very sad for me. And I see this in Europe as well. They, they were so sneaky. They took away the guns 
of the Australians anyway, I don't know the situation in, in New Zealand, they took away nation states in Europe with the um, EU. They, they got everyone used to this cushy, easy, you know, pleasant sounding parliamentary system. And then they completely pulled the rug out from under you and there was nothing you could do, right? And by then, there, respectfully, there were habits of let's not rock the boat, let's mm-hmm. just fly our way out of this, why aren't they listening to us? And I guess what I'm trying to say is that scares me, you know, more than mm-hmm. anything. Um, and so what I am seeing in the United States, thank God, and it's taken a lot, it's taken a lot of fighting, but you know, I, I just want to say it is that because we do have a constitution, because we do have a second amendment and because of our state system where some states, you know, stayed open and others closed and people are able to influence, but you have a state system also from what I understand. No, we're very, very linear here. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm just going to say like, you know, please wake up Australia and New Zealand. It, nothing good is going to happen if you guys don't resist much more um, assertively than than you are. And I guess I'm just, I have no more patience for any excuses. Mm. Like, you know, yes, it was hard to find whatever, you know, create your own media, you know, like it was hard for us to find. I, I gave up everything to tell the truth. You know, I gave up everything, but, but I'm educated enough that anyone is right to look at the COVID maps that were being, I'm sure, fed to New Zealand, fed to Australia, fed to Britain, and ask where are the data sets? You know, you're 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 educated enough to ask where are the data sets, where are they? There were people that were doing that. So my husband was one. So my husband's actually medical. So my husband is completely mandated out and he's had to like completely start again. We felt so strongly about this because the data, he was all about the data. He had that data, as you said, from November when that Japanese study was released primarily around the spike protein. And he was apoplectic about that because on New Zealand television, we had our medical leaders, in inverted commas, telling us, no, it stays in the injection site, it doesn't go anywhere. And of course, there was hard data, peer-reviewed, solid science from a nation that wasn't so influenced by pharmaceutical interests saying, well, actually, no, that is not the case. And women are most at risk. Now in this country, we have with Mother's Day this past weekend, a government who is now heavily promoting COVID boosters to pregnant women aged between 16 and 29. And actually, it's not, they're not promoting it to to pregnant mothers, they're promoting it to pregnant people, which is another personal bugbear of mine. The data is irrefutable now. It is out there. It cannot be contested. And yet the propaganda machine continues to roll on and continues to say the same old tropes that have been broken down, that it's safe and effective, that you need to do it to protect your baby. It won't pass the blood uh, placental barrier. I mean, all of these things. It is just absolutely infuriating well that's very upsetting um and i'm really sorry about what happened to you and your husband horrible and i'm very sorry to hear that they're still going after pregnant women in new zealand with it i hope that our uh our research reports the pfizer documents reports are reaching Mm -hmm. at least people like you in australia because that is abundant documentation of how dangerous these are especially for pregnant women um but for everyone 
and that they lack efficacy. You know, you did all the right things, right? And and this is not aimed at you, but we have to stop waiting for them to tell us the truth, right? I mean, I say in the bodies of others, that's one of the most radical spaces is just a living room where humans are talking to each other or a town hall or an auditorium or a church or a synagogue where humans are talking to each other. We've literally become so hypnotized by passively ingesting information electronically that we say things like the propaganda machine is starting instead of gathering humans together and saying, okay, what do you know? What do you know? And I I guess what I'm trying to say to everybody is don't, don't trust the abuser anymore. Don't trust the newspapers. Don't trust your elected officials. They are trying to kill you. They're trying to kill your children. You know, I've given you all the documentation. It's on the, all the reports are there for free on dailycloud.io. There are 70 reports based on the Pfizer documents released under court order showing a genocidal attack on humanity, especially on human reproduction. And the book is out now, um, the Pfizer Documents Research Reports book compiled by 3,500 medical and scientific experts who volunteered to read through these documents. And it shows the greatest crime against humanity in recorded history, especially aimed at women and reproduction. So when I say I'm a little tired or impatient, I don't, it's, it's past the point where listening to anyone official is going to do anything but feed you into a giant oven. And it's past the point where you can think that complying is going to rescue you. I mean, I've studied, I don't just mean you, I mean, everyone Mm. in New Zealand, everyone in Australia, everyone in Canada. I've studied, I wrote a book called The End of America in 2008 about how um, tyrannies overthrow democracies. And at this point, I don't know if your emergency measures are still in place. Um, On Wednesday, the WHO is going to be voting on a treaty to drain sovereignty of your country and my country and every country around the world. Um, There are, you know, fighting age men pouring over our southern border. I'm a big supporter of legal immigration, but, you know, that's happening. You know, my, my husband's view is that we're, we're under attack and it's an asymmetrical attack. And so is New Zealand and so is Australia. So is Canada with a WHO treaty. They can land, you know, a battalion on our shores or your shores and call them public health experts and start rounding us up. And you have no guns, Mm. you know, and you, you have, no um, habits of resistance. I'm, I'm, this is not aimed at you. I'm like, it's so heartbreaking to be now I'm talking internationally. This is a breakthrough. I hadn't been. Same thing in Italy, same thing in Britain, same thing in, in Canada. Uh, like the last two and a half years in places that don't have a constitution and don't have a second amendment, everyone is so depressed, so broken, so traumatized. And I, I guess I, I don't mean to like, lecture or berate anyone but like literally the next step is is what china does to their own people mm. you know they'll be harvesting our organs next you know but mm. but not in america because we're 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 literally gave up like half the country's given up on ele- our elected officials and we're mobilizing locally we're finding out where our food sources come from we're training we're learning to shoot we're you know keeping our weapons stockpiled um we're we're resisting uh laws to take away our weapons we're um learning about how our local um laws work we're running for town council so that's kind of what i'm trying to say to you not you personally but all of new zealand all of australia all of italy you know all of canada stop waiting right you have to give up and start over 
You have to give up on them treating you fairly, on them rep representing the situation fairly. They will lie. They will try to kill you. It is time to rebuild from the bottom up. I'm talking with Dr. Naomi Wolf here with Counterculture and Marie. You are so right. And I think that is beginning to happen. We have an election here in October. The political machinations are already beginning to start, obviously, with the resignation of Jacinda Ardern. So that was the first thing in January. We have a mixed member proportional system here. So unlike the two party system in the United States, we do have the ability for alternate voices to be heard. And I think that's been one of the things about our democracy that has given us all the fruits of freedom and liberty in the past. However, um, using the COVID measures and the fear to almost paralyze the populace, the current government were voted in with an absolute majority at the last election in 2017. We have seen a lot of these tyrannical measures in that time because it was completely linear. It was essentially a dictatorship in democracy's clothing. We're now fully into election season here. So hopefully things will improve. Now you're about to head into primary season up in the United States and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has announced his candidacy uh, to have a run at the Democratic nomination. I mean, I think for a classic liberal Democrat, that is must be music to, the, to their ears to finally actually have a candidate who will restore some of the tenets of classic liberalism. How is so far is he being received and do you think he's going to be given a fair shot by the media? You know, I'm an acquaintance of his uh, and I respect a lot of things about him. I'm not allowed to endorse. I'm supposed to be nonpartisan. So I, I just need to keep my remarks, mm. you know, short of endorsing. But that said, I, I'm actually quite disappointed he's running as a Democrat. I think that's a mistake. I, you know, ha have served as an advisor on two presidential campaigns on the Democratic side. They're criminals. The current, um, I mean, they weren't at that time, but mm. now they are. The current DNC, they are murderous criminals. They, they've committed treason. The Biden administration is thoroughly in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party and making war on its own people. So through the Democratic Party. And I've sat at state legislatures across the country and the Democrats are acting like petty Stalinists in lockstep. It is so scary. You can't budge them. They walk out of things in unison. They shut things down in unison. It's they're, It's a criminal kind of mafioso type party now. I mean, the Republicans are not much better, but the trouble is if, if given that RFK Jr. is running as a Democrat, he, you know, they'll do everything they can to keep him from being the nominee mm. and from getting elected. I wish he had run as an independent because I think there's a coalition of, in your country too, probably, people are realizing it's not about left versus right. It's about these monsters versus mm. everyone. It's about control. Exactly. Uh, you know, no, he's not getting a, a fair ride in the media, but again, why, you know, he doesn't expect to, I don't think. Mm. Like he's been, you know, reviled for a long time for doing the things he did at Riverkeeper, you know, for rivers, like he's mm. done for health and he's been reviled. But I don't think his campaign is doing a great job either. You know, they're not messaging in a way mm. that can break through the hostility uh, in the press. So sure, I'm glad he's running, but I would be gladder if he had taken another approach. The saying done in this part of the world, if America sneezes, we catch a cold. We watch the American elections very, very closely. And for us, having now two terms of an exceptionally progressive 
governance. We are hoping that New Zealanders have had enough of the nonsense, they're waking up to it. I fully agree with you. I think the time to sit back and be silent and hope that it'll all settle down and go away is over. I mean, unless you change it, this is why this radio station was created, is that we needed to give all the voices out there who are not hearing their voices reflected in mainstream or legacy media, a place that they can actually know that they're not crazy and that there are others out there that see the concerns that are there. I just want to jump in and say, sorry to be such a downer, but the swing of the pendulum isn't going to fix it either because look at Scott Morrison, right? He was mm-hmm. a conservative. He, he let, he did everything wrong. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I just don't believe that politics at a national level is going to solve this. It has to be local, local, local and um, grassroots. But anyway, go ahead. And we have seen this here. So this station is owned by a grassroots organisation that has been created uh, at the time of COVID to actually do exactly that, create communities. Um, yeah, and so you're right, we, it's starting, but it is taking its time to, to get there. What we're currently experiencing now is what I call a, a show of bread and circuses where they are downplaying a lot of the COVID measures. They know that that is now not palatable to the New Zealand public. And so everything here since the, the visit of Posey Parker a couple of months ago is all that around the, the trans issue. We're five and a half million people. The number of people that fall into that group is exceptionally tiny. Uh, and that's my concern is that, you know, so much noise has been made about that issue that actually lots of other stuff is going on behind it in the background in regards to sort of economic measures, um, military measures, as you said, the WHO treaties, all of these things. And it's we're all being distracted in one area. It's like, no, you need to be looking over here because this is what's. I totally agree with you. Um, That's exactly what it's for. You know, I'm a big supporter of LGBTQ rights. This craziness does not come from the trans community organically. It's um, superimposed. And it's exactly to distract us and to divide us and to keep us looking at the shiny object and the bearded men, you know, in dresses trying to read storybooks to children, which is no, literally no trans person I know would want to do that or would dress that badly, you know? Um, and it's it's totally um, a, a diversionary tactic. The other way you can tell that is even before the 2020, by about 2019, I began to notice that AI was creating a lot of bots and trolls on whenever trans issues came up on social media platforms. And so I really thought, huh, you know, trans people are not the ones organically gaming these algorithms. So that's a really good indicator that um, it's, you know, again, part of this great reset, you know, Black Lives Matter. Again, I support, of course, Black Lives Matter, but that, you know, the money that funded Mm -hmm. that, you know, rioting across our country, that was not grassroots organic, you know, people of color. That was straight from the CCP via cutouts. And that's happening, you know, around the world or, you know, World Economic Forum through Soros, through et cetera, or Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation through cutouts or the Clinton Foundation through cutouts. And so this is spectacle, you know, it's, mm. and it's the same around, around the world, the developed world. It's, you know, violence and name calling and people throwing things. And this is literally not how the LGBTQ community, you know, works organically. Mm. 
So your career has taken a big pivot in the last three years with everything that's gone on. Where to now? I mean, I know you've been writing for Brownstone. You're doing um, this research. Tell us what you're actually up to now and what where people can find this information. What are some of the resources that should, they should be hunting out if they're not already aware of it? Thank you. And I do apologize if I sounded stern. I'm just. You're allowed to sound as stern. It's, we call it a woodshed chat in this country. You've just given Kiwis a good woodshed chat, Naomi. So do not worry about that at all. Well, I, you know, you never want to be the the easy for her to say person, you know, like it's, it's, I, I recognize that I'm in a, a more free context speaking to people in a less free context. So I, I um, just want to say, I, you know, I love you guys and want, want you to prevail. Um, all right. What, what's going on? So the big thing right now is the, the Pfizer documents research analysis reports book, which has just gone into its third printing. It's been sold out within like 48 hours in the last two printings. So you can go to Amazon and order it. And please do, because it will save lives for you to read it, but also distribute it to doctors and to your elected officials. I am, apart from that, I'm running Daily Clout, which is a a new site devoted to democracy and uh, human rights around the world. And so if people listening to this want to report to me about New Zealand, what's going on here, anything, you know, what it's like to live day by day, uh, grassroots um, undertakings like the ones you've described, you know, just daily life, local local candidacies. We'd love to have uh, people write or send us video about um, democracy, activism, et cetera, human rights in, in uh, New Zealand. What else am I doing? Those are the main things. It's a lot. <laughs> um, and I guess also people should know that there's a functionality on, on Daily Cloud, the news site that is like um, a surveillance-free Facebook. It's called Communities. And we've just launched it with new branding. And you can basically um, promote anything you know, without Facebook-type harvesting of your data or surveilling you. Um, and you can also send any U.S. bill through state uh, state or federal bill through social media. We don't yet have a Bill Cam New Zealand, but that's, we want, you know, there are 132 democracies and um, Bill Cam US is so fantastic. You can just send the actual bill through social media, vote on it, interact with it, send it to the bill sponsor. It's been very effective for changing legislation. And uh, if people want to start a New Zealand uh, Bill Cam, um, it's, you know, we just need to raise like $35,000 and we can get that built as well. Mm. I know that sounds wonderful. I appreciate so much that you've been able to be so generous with your time this morning. Dr. Naomi Wolf here with Reality Check Radio. Stay tuned, more to come. Thank you so much. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Certainly some thought-provoking and powerful ideas from Dr. Naomi Wolf. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop me a text. Send your comment to 2057. That number again, 2057. You're with Marie on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. 
With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I, I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. You're with Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my guest this morning is Di Landy, who is the co-founder of Manawahini Kōrero. Good morning, Di. Kia ora. Welcome to Counterculture. Thank you for having me. I got sent an article that you wrote, which we're going to dive into into a minute. Explain to our listeners, what is Manawahini Kōrero? We had watched the gender woo-woo come through, and as far as we know, we are the only Indigenous women's gender-critical group globally. We haven't found another one, and we're more than happy to be corrected on this. And so just watch, watching all these changes come through, it was just, oh, hold on. And so, and as you know, all the elites have sold us out. Um, so we formed, the Māori Party said to us, get a group together of like-minded people, get your documents together, and we'll have a meeting. So that that was sort of the beginning of Manawahine Kōrero. And so we did everything, and ever since then, we've been blacklisted and um, ignored Oh, lovely. Now, you said the Māori Party had said that to you. Are the Māori Party one of those people that are blacklisted or are they still working with you? Oh, no, they've never worked with us. Oh, they've, they've never, never worked had with a, you? Never worked with us. They've never responded. Like, we've had no response to this Weehongi article. There's um, our midwifery response. We sent it to 160 of the sitting MPs and all we got was auto-responses back. Mm. So in Manawahini Kōrero, we're blacklisted, we're ignored, and so we just carry on doing what we do. Right. So let's dive into that article. You sent me also your submission as well. These are so powerful, and it disgusts me that no one has gotten back to you. I just cannot believe it. So what we're referring to is an article in Quillette, which is an online magazine, which many of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, This only dropped on the 4th of May, so it's very current, written by you. And the title is Fictionalising Māori History in the Name of Gender Ideology. Around the world, trans activists are cynically attempting to drape their fetish colonial theories in the garb of timelessness, indigenous wisdom. I really do recommend that people dig this article out. I was fascinated by this. I didn't realise how much work had gone on by those who are, are proponents of gender ideology within the Māori space. So how long has that been going on for, Di? Oh, 
217, somewhere around there. Okay, so it's been a a lot of the words that I think it's gender minorities inside out or whichever one it is, you know, they're just all the, the rainbow thugs to me. Um, and, and all the words that they refer to have, have all been invented since 2019 by their own admission. And right. um, it's, it's quite, you know, I, I've been watching this spread across globally and you can see how it attaches to Indigenous people with an oral culture. Now, this is very important. Where it's coming undone, in my belief, for Māori culture, is that not only is it oral, but we have carvings, motete, haka, waiata. So we have all these other forms of recording our culture. And if we um, do a comparison to say like the Aborigines in Australia, they don't have the carvings and all. So it's a lot easier to attach when it's only oral because then we can just come in and say what we want. And, you know, the, the great um, revisionist. In the article, you referenced person Ahiwihongi. Ahiwihongi says here, historically, Māori culture has in- included more genders than just male and female. That's going back a long, long way. Pre-colonisation in Aotearoa, the human rights situation and gender equality was much more advanced than it was at the UK at the time. I grew up on the East Coast. I've never remembered anybody talking about any any gender no. woo-woo going on. Is this a, re, a rewriting of Māori history it, or are they? It yes? most definitely is. And this is the most important part for me is that the state are rewriting it, not the people. See, when people language does evolve, that's just the nature of language. Very important that people understand the difference between the state changing it to the natural evolution of it. There's very important linguistic reasons for this. For example, we have an accent, we have the regional dialects, um, we have the in-house jokes, the unsaid meanings, we have the imprinting of the cadence of the language, stress on the syllables, how your mouth moves for pronunciation, and the changes to the sentence structure. But when the, and it's natural, but when the state comes in, that just changes and removes the depth of the meaning. And within one generation, we will lose this history that goes with the depth and it won't be coming back. And because this is actually a living language, I mean, that depth and that history, that really is being passed down from generation to generation to generation generation. on marae. So how on earth can the state think that they could turn you all into cookie cutter Māori and standardise this? Yes, going for this homogeny. And and a lot of it, to me anyway, is it's like um, they infantilise the language into poetry. And that's where this transliteration falls down. So I'll just talk about an interview I did when I was working with the homeless, for example. Okay, now, this was 10 to 15 years ago, and I was interviewed on the radio. And they said, oh, is, um, you know, are Māori people homeless because of fucking ma? And I said to Doreen, it was, I said, well, Doreen, it depends on your descriptor of ma." Now, as a um, tauiwi, I understand you'd think it to mean shy. That's the general consensus. Oh, fuck ma, oh, they're shy, but it's not. Fuck ma is I'm shamed, I'm ashamed, I'm uncertain, I'm unsure, I'm not fitting. And every feeling that comes with those words is fuck ma. Mm. So that is the depth as opposed to shy. 
And so it's only going to take a generation yeah. for all this to be lost. And the elites are collaborating, and this is happening at the highest level. Like, for example, the Midwifery Council, they did a two-year consultation. There were six highly educated Māori, one of whom was a man, and there were 11 tau iwi. And there's a connection to Jamie Veal, who is an Englishman who says he's a woman. He's also the secretary of WPATH and the president of PATHA in New Zealand. At the same time they were consulting on the, because he was on the broader consultation, mm -hmm. along with Dr. George Parker and Kitty Kitty and all those other skullduggery mongrels. At the same time he was collaborating on the Māori midwifery, he is in PATHA pushing eunuch to be a sexual identity. So what on earth is he doing on a consultation council around women's health for midwifery? I wouldn't even th think that he was appropriate to be there. He's an Englishman who says he's a woman. Right, so that's his qualification, illusions it, it of must be. It, it must be, but I'm, you know, it's quite distressing to see all the connections with PASA, um, Elizabeth Kitty Kitty, and just these names just keep coming up time and time again where this is happening. It's the same group of people, and, and I put it to whoever wants to listen to me, doing your consultation with yourselves isn't consultation. There are 103 recognised iwi in New Zealand. How many of these got to the table? Yeah, yeah. It's actually not consultation. What that is is consultation laundering, isn't it? It's like money laundering. Yes. If you yes, if you put is. it in a, a cycle within itself, within its own echo chamber, eventually it's going to pop out and sound really good and squeaky clean, but it's never been out to the big wide world, has it? No, I mean, kahu porkai for our midwives. Something about membranes of the eggs. You know, we were really distressed about the midwives as... You know, they've taken our naming rights. So this whole movement is removing words in English and then transliterating them in Māori as if they're real. Hmm. You know, this... Um, so let's sort of back up. So you and I have dived sorry. into this. No, not at all. This is one of those cultural stories that has been buried, that everyday New Zealanders are not hearing because... What is being portrayed in legacy media is this beautiful, unified, kukikatamari, and everybody is happy, and we're making this wonderful progress, and this is what we're doing. When in fact, as you said, you know, 103 different iwi, there are different uh, subtleties in language and culture and protocol, and all of those are passed down intergenerationally from family to family. But I just want to dive a little bit more into this article because I think this article is so important important and it was written beautifully for the Quillette audience which then means that if you don't have an understanding even of Te Ao Māori you could go and read this and go oh I had no idea this was going on so it's a really good gateway piece for yes. people so Thank you. Uh, no it really is fantastic talk a little bit more about the importance of that oral history, but also how all those other elements you mentioned before, like carving, stories, legends, tukutuku, all of those different things, actually, even though the histories are oral, and in the case of Māori, they're not really. There is actually a recorded history yes. there. Explain for our listeners a little bit more around that for the foundation of how that is now being manipulated. 
they're being ignored. Like, you will find no meeting house to the great trans warrior. It doesn't exist. There are no haka. There are no carvings. There is no tukutuku panels. Like, we have a very rich, full history. And people seem to think, because I, I view it, you know, as Māori, we were so accepting. Right? We were accepting of each other. Homosexuality exists and it always has. Even the taonga we hungi refers to is of a homosexual couple. They come in, like how the trans has attached itself to the anti-bullying in schools, it attaches to indigenous cultures to give the facade of antiquity and authenticity. And it does this by a handful of elites nodding along. Even Elizabeth Carey Carey's theses on page 82 she clearly states there is no evidence of this in our culture and yet out of that 250 pages you know you might have to delete this bit out Mari but it just read to me like me and my mates on holiday and who do we root you know it was hardly academic quality to me having been through institutions you know the Pakia institution to get tohu so these elites are doing a lot of damage they are turning our language into a transliteration. Old people don't even know what they're saying. I know of heaps of Māori that have dropped out of learning it because of the changes. They says, I can't get with this. I've been doing it for two years and it's changed again. We've just had these education submissions and about attaching and force framing. Okay, so in the morning, they had a panel for the Māori Battalion scholarships. So I want to know why in the afternoon in the education bill, the wānanga was put in with gender ID. Why wasn't the wānanga part put in with the Māori Battalion part and heard on this place, not over here? It was the same panel, but a different act. Do you feel like that Māoridom has been used as a pawn in a much wider game? Absolutely, yes. It surely is indeed. It's all, it's so fashionable and all this naming of everything in Māori is ridiculous. We are not all home to it. We don't all agree with it. We haven't had a say in it. I mean, you know, New Zealand's biggest thing is tourism. Half of New Zealand doesn't speak Māori. I read uh, something like only 3 to 4% are fluent in te reo. And from what you're saying, that most of those gen- intergenerational te reo speakers, even they're struggling to keep up with the language. So then, I mean, I'm relatively literate in te reo. I'm not what I call a fluent speaker, but I know enough that if I go somewhere where I hear a conversation, I know what they're talking about roughly, I can't necessarily converse back. But I know more than the average Joe on the street. But even for me, the reframing and the renaming of government departments exclusively into te reo and te whatu ora would be one of my it's one of my personal bugbears is exclusionary to everybody except for a very small minority of people and the reason they're excluding those people is that they want to control them as if to say well you can only be consultative in this process if you understand but they deliberately don't allow you to understand no absolutely and for me, with all this renaming like the Fatu Order, when, you know, oh, we're doing it for the treaty, treaty inclusion, what a load of kaka. You know, like that is an inclusion. At the moment, our government are running through queer theory. Everything comes through queer theory, 
gender ideology and the social justice. Mm. And it's and um, Manawahini Korero went to a corrections meeting because they're locking men in women's prisons and they have the identity. And I asked if it was about gender and they went, no, it's about race. And I was, what? I don't identify as Māori. I am a Māori. Uh, our cobbled together cloak. You know, they want to wear our skin. People go, oh, yes, but that's inclusionary. And it is a protected language, you know. But let me tell you, it is. And it's protected for us, tangata whenua. It isn't protected for everyone else. We have the living memory of our parents being shamed. We have the living memory of the hidings. We have the memory of nanny on the floor being kicked. Not you, not the mm. government, Māori. Mm. We have this memory. It's our living memory. It is not for everyone to own. Mm. And so when people go, oh, but, you know, it's protected. Yes, they protected it for us. We're being inclusionary. And it's uh, an official language. Well, I don't see you flapping your arms around using deaf and sign. Why yeah. is it only mouldy? And then a lot of it for me is like race baiting because there's still this uneasy Hobson's Pledge thing happening in New Zealand. And that's because people are stupid and listen to MSN. Hmm. If people haven't clicked on in New Zealand that they need to start coming to the alternative news outlets, then all this race baiting will succeed. So let's cycle to that, because I think that that brings in the Posey Parker visit. So firstly, well done to you and your team to bring her here. Even though she didn't get to speak a word, the resonance of her visit has been massive. And and as you said, the legacy media, I think that was the first time for a long time that I have seen ideological issues, the reality of ideological issues in people's faces, as much as the media tried to gaslight New Zealanders saying, oh no, it was mostly very peaceful and in the the counter-protest, I loved it, the counter-protest, insinuating that the reason you were there was a protest to begin with. Walk us through that day. Tell us how it unfolded for, for the team, your team on the ground. Right. Well, firstly, I didn't attend Auckland, okay? It was the most horrendous thing, you know, for months. We got told late January that Posey was coming. So a team of women cobbled themselves together and just, you know, pedal to the metal, so to speak. So a week prior to that, there were uh, over 100 and 58 legacy media articles all calling her anti-trans. And of the 158, I'm suggesting 100 of them also called her and us a Nazi. Now, we got interviewed on the 20th of March by Rachel Smalley on Today FM. That was our very first. She was the only one yeah. who, who bothered. That was completely ignored. This forced framing of calling us Nazis is nothing but Holocaust denial, in in my mind, because you're saying that this is as bad as that, but I don't see any bodies. I don't see any gas chambers. I have an issue with the term genocide that has been used, particularly with the likes of Shanil Lal. And it is, for me, dangerous. To use it is very dangerous. It's very dangerous. And Māori, because, you know, a lot of Māori are sovereign, so they're just living in the sticks and don't know anything about this. This is coming out of academia into our marae. And you'll see through the um, mandates, our marae shut people out. I want to know 
why all these Māori people, bigwigs, all these Māori activists trust the government now. When did that happen? Because mm. I missed that memo. And the fact they locked people in their hour of need out of our manai, they should be hanging their heads in shame. You're with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I am talking to Di Landy. Were there some marae that pushed back on this or not enough? Push back, not the ones I know of, you know, like even, you know, go to my local marae and no, you're not allowed in here. Weaving classes, participants weren't allowed to go because they weren't vaccinated. So no, I don't know of any marae. Mm. I remember sitting here sobbing, watching a Waitangi day and a whole lot of Māori could not go on their marae because of it. Yeah. No, you can't come on here. Hikama. What has happened to our people? Have they gotten so complacent and lazy? Is it just they're just too busy trying to feed their families and hold their land? But this is all wrong, the infantilising of our language and taking away the meanings, you know, and that depth comes with the generational oral knowledge. That's all being lost via the elite. Māori are, what, 16% of our population? Yeah, thereabouts. And it's a well-known that Māori cultural disassociation is a precursor for loss of identity. Māori youth should be at the forefront of this language push because now I'm going to tell you what our suicide stat is for Māori youth, and it's higher than our Māori population. The suicide stat for Māori youth is 17.6%. That's tragic. It is tragic, yet they're doing all this other stuff. As soon, how did we get to a place that for mental health, we're going to chop bits of your body off as the preferred option and treatment? So, it's interesting you bring that up. So an article uh, from Dr. Peter McCullough of Courageous Discourses, and it was mental health care burden of transgender youth before and after gender affirming treatment. So he's saying here the heavy psychiatric care costs are getting worse after hormones. And he cited a study, and this was published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, a study that is done, a retrospective cohort study using military healthcare data from 2010 to 2018. So that is before the height of this right. craziness, because yes. we know from 2018 on it went really crazy. Identifying mental health care diagnoses, visit psychotropic medication prescriptions among transgender youth who receive care for gender dysphoria before the age of 18. The summary on this is, is sadly, transgender adolescents are more likely to have mental health diagnoses more mental health care services, they use more psychotropic medications compared to normal siblings. Diagnoses included adjustment, anxiety, mood, personality and psychotic disorders and suicidal and attempted suicide ideations. And these are all in youth under 18 years. And this study is from the period of 2010 to 2018. I hate to think what it's like now. Right now. What it's like now is just, apart from being OTT, like the counting ourselves, the questions are very loaded, they're very closed. This is how bad our legacy media is. One week they'll put out they're the most depressed and, and they all want to kill themselves. And then the next week, within or within days, another article coming out saying that, you know, nearly 70% of New Zealanders have felt this same feeling. I, I don't know what's happened to people's critical thinking skills. Porn is a big driver. The internet's a big driver. But this disconnection, 
you know, I'm back to the disconnection for our youth. You know, why are they not offered te reo first and foremost instead of it going out? When Manawahine Korero submitted on the um, SIFs, oh yeah, or Orangatamari, or whatever they call themselves, I, I just called them the child catchers myself. They were calling for 10% of people on the board to have Māori knowledge. And we went, oh, no, 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 no. They must fuck a papa Māori. It isn't enough that you can go to the university to, for eight weeks, learn your mihi, learn how to say hello, learn how to say goodbye, and then that passes for Māori knowledge. That is nowhere enough. I'm not fluent either. And and what's also happening with this language is the us and them. Oh, you're not fluent. As if you're less than. That's a real shit thing to put on an already oppressed person. Mm. I want to have a look at this disconnection element and I'm going to talk about politics and if let me know if you think I'm talking a whole bunch of kaka because I could be. (laughs) One of the things that I remember particularly through the 90s and the early 2000s is John Tamahiri had a huge die is rolling her eyes at me uh, about (laughs) about the disconnection of Māori youth particularly urban Māori and the Waipareta Trust was created to theoretically reconnect Māori youth back to the hapu, back to the culture. He talked about the importance of the sovereignty and the strength of Māori and, and the pride of Māori. And it was like, okay, well, that all yes. things. Then all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, um, a couple of, le- of election cycles ago, the whole language and the messaging changed. And all of a sudden, Māori were victims. I remember thinking to myself, because at the time when I met John, he was a Labour MP. He was... And he was part of that wider caucus uh, with Dover Samuels and Tariana Turia was there, Peter Sharples were there. You know, they were part of this wider Māori caucus within governance in New Zealand. So they were really working quite hard to put all of these things in place. Then all of a sudden, yes, messaging changed. And now I almost feel like he's driving the disconnection. He's trying to drive that wedge that you're talking about within Māori. Are you seeing that or not? Yes, absolutely. They they are the drivers. You know, for example, corrections are locking men in women's prisons because they say they're women at a time where, oh, what's our stats? 68, 70% of incarcerated women are tangata whenua. We have just stopped, and I mean, and I mean, just stopped within the last six months handcuffing women while they are giving birth. Um, that's that's appalling you know and it is the elites driving it in my mind anyway and personally um tariana and peter sharples were the last great politicians Mm. for maldedom the rest are nothing but show ponies um they're playing to the gallery you know i mean it's performative um, isn't it performative uh, i've actually come off the maldi role wow is that to give yourself more choice Part of it, it's my personal, what do you call it, my personal protest against what they are aiding, abetting and facilitating because it's only going to take one generation for all this to be lost. Manawahini Kōrero very clearly stand, we will become extinct with this trans ideology attaching itself to us. We will become extinct and it won't take long. So until then, we have to watch this watered down, anglicised, infantilised version of what we are. 
Mm. You know, and I find it very distressing and disturbing. And when the old people, like when I say, like, for example, Kahu Pokai is the new name for midwife, and I say that, I've said that to about three nannies, it's actually been quite hard for me not to interject and lead them and just sit on my hands. And then within, like, five seconds, they're just laughing. Mm. Wee girl, what's that? And, yeah, that's the new midwives, and they're calling everyone Fano. So they're, they're taking the words for all these words are losing their, their meanings, their very deep cultural, spiritual meanings. And as a, like we saw it, I saw it in the um, Matatini, the Kapahaka, and all oh, we're breaking the boundaries. I want to know why these people are even considering how our two puna, how they had sex. Why are you even thinking that? That's yucky. Why are you thinking, using this revisionist, romanticised, oh, love, love, love? Yes, but I do not, do not for an instant think this existed in our people. We, If you look at our cosmology, even though we share some and there are some are different, we, the threads running through them are incest, domestic violence. Mm. So we have some very heavy themes, but not tranniness. Like, I always look for old books, and I had an old fable book, and they are savage. But you get them now, and they're reading like a Disney channel. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like the sensitivity writers have gotten their hand, hands yes. on all those original myths and legends. And, I mean, they were quite brutal. I mean, warriors were warriors for a reason. Yes, yes, and, you know, like I'm forever saying to people, what, you think that warrior thing only hit the men? Hmm. You know, because, yep. you know, we've had some amazing Māori wahine leaders right back to suffragette days. And and so I'm, I'm in two minds, like with the suffragettes, Māori, because for a Māori woman to be part of the suffragette movement, she had to deny wearing her, her moko kauai. And so, like, we can be part of this if we do that. I don't see much difference these days to all this pouring water in the language and changing the meaning. And then people come and transliterate it. They give something a name you know, because they think that's what it means without deep, meaningful consultation. Oh, they go and Google the meaning. Yep, that's us. And that suffices for research and consultation. And then, you know, people are going, oh, no, we got gifted it. I mean, what's, what, what do you mean you got gifted it? I don't get that. I get when old people, you know, our nannies and that, like I went to the naming of Kapiti School for Parihaka, I understand that because of where it is. Mm. You know, this is Atiawa area, this college, and got strong links and what have you to Taropraha. That I get, but all this other stuff, I mean, what do you mean you gifted it? Who are you? Mm. Well, I was just gonna say Taropraha was he was the one was he the one that when he got chased he hid in the in the in the um That's what the we menstrual, menstrual shed? Yeah, I remember yes. that from school. Yeah. Yes, and, and see how that's gone from the power of Te Awa Atua, the menstrual blood, because that's our ancestors, you know, from Te Whare Tangata, it's gone from the power of the menstrual blood was enough to shield him from the tohunga, the very powerful tohunga, to these days it's the shame of the man hiding under the skirt of a woman. The manipulation. Yes, and that's what's happening everywhere. 
And what's happening, like I say, I think the later we're 16 to 17.1%. It depends who you read how, how many Māori are in New Zealand. So that means 83% of the country that are non-Māori, the Tōiwi, have the power to change our language by what's happening. All these departments, I mean, for example, I know Tongari it all's closed now, but I'll, you go up there and all these signs and all these bushwalks and everything's in Māori. How are people meant to know what they're saying? Yeah, yeah. It's using the language to exclude people, to deliberately exclude yes. people because they want to maintain control. I've often used yes. the example when I've had this discussion with people and they say to me, but you should be all for this because you've got Māori heritage. And I was like, yes, but Māori is part of who I am. It's not all of who I am. Yes. It's just I am, you know. And, and also too, yeah. I mean, I fuck a papa back to Te Rawara as well as Ngāti Pro. So look, I mean, if you know Māori history, mm. there's a bit of conflict there so yes, you know yes. not exactly those two wouldn't have been breaking bread back in the day so I remember as a child when I'd go with my grandfather and he was very very good friends with the chief of Ngāti Pro at the time was one of his closest friends and he was just such a wonderful man but he used to say to me often he said oh Marie he said you do so well since your blood is so conflicted that's a living memory Marie that's a living memory mm. right there like um we're Natikahu, which is not far from Tararawa in my family my sister married from Tefano up Nui ah right up at the so top of the coast so it's the same between you, mm. that same conflict. Yes. So this is a living memory that all of this is going to be lost with this bastardization and the state control of our language because the state is controlling this push. They're wanting to enforce themselves as Nati government, aren't they? They're wanting to be... <laughs> yes, Nati government. <laughs> <laughs> a little thread that I just want to to go down and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I do a media piece after this interview and the man that I do it with, and he has spent a lot of time within the Māori community as well. One of the things that we often talk about with the election year this year, one of the things that him and I have been exploring is where does a conservative traditional Māori voter go? Because at the moment, as you said, there's not a lot of choice. So where do they go? Let's walk through firstly, Mecca's, she's gone and jumped Walker. I find it very disturbing. It's rules for thee, but not for me. Mm. So no wonder our country's a mess if the politicians aren't going to follow their own rule with Mecca is that she's left the Hawke's Bay, that area, in a hell of a state. You yeah. know, there's, uh, there are still crews of workmen going up there, like say from Downer and these other companies. I think they did maybe four weeks. These big companies went up and assisted with all their machinery for nothing. Now now they're charging, and rightly so, it's a business. But then we get Red Cross sitting on the money. Mecca jumps Walker and rows her own way. Elizabeth Kitty for bloody bullying, but she's a list MP, but is going to stay an independent on and is going to stay there till the election. This stuff's not allowed, but it's happening. Mm. Well, she, so she's someone who's interesting. I don't know a lot about her, but when I look into some of the policies and the things that she's into, uh, the, the activism runs deep in her, but it's steeped in all of this bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's her thesis was underwritten by the place in California, the same place as John Money went to. Oh, John Hopkins? Yeah, I think it might be Hopkins. It was a, California underwrote that, so that means they picked up the bill. And, you know, look, I... I I've been doing this um, gender stuff a while now, Marie, and 
for the life of me, I can't work out the payout. Is it money? Is it just money? Is it what is it? Apart from kudos and ass pats, I don't know what it would be. Why are you so proud you're colonizing your people? Why are you so proud that you agree that cutting the balls off our youth is a good idea? Because yeah. this eunuch is coming in, and this is where Jamie Beale comes back, back in, this pommy man. He's, you know, the eunuch is now, you know, being pushed as a sexual orientation. Anecdotally on the street, the mental health, almost 50% of new referrals are for this gender ID and it's females. And then they get it. How are we going to connect our youth back to our culture when they're doing this to it? This is Counterculture with Marie on Reality Check Radio. I am talking to Di Landy from Manawahine Kōrero. One of the things that was laid bare, firstly after the COVID Mm. bullshit, now with all this gender ideology, it sort of was starting to get a bit of momentum and then COVID came along and it put the brakes on it a little bit. And then it was all COVID, 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 COVID. They were able to, and when I say they, I mean the government, were able to apply restrictions onto a population using fear. They've now got everybody nice and compliant. The COVID fear is dropping away, but the ideologues that were pushing that fear and rowing that walker are now like, right, let's pick up where we left off in 2019 and let's hit the trans again. And I believe it's all about power. I really do. Power, control and transhumanism. I disagree that they put the brakes on, though. That's when they did the push behind closed doors. Uh, So so what do you know about that? Because I know you've done a little bit of work in that area. For example, the submissions through the BDMRR bill birth, deaths, marriages, BMD, RR bill, the um, birth certificate bill. That happened during lockdown. They refused to accept emails. No one could get to their library because we were in lockdown and they gave a very short space to submit in and only got brought back because after the first submissions, the evil government inserted clauses and that is the only, this is my opinion, I mean, they did insert clauses That is why it got brought back to the table. But during lockdown, so much happened under wraps. Like on June the 15th this year, any person can go and change their sex marker on their birth certificate and they've removed the marker to say a change has been made. So you can't even signal that the change has been made? Correct, and this is where fucker papa comes in. For me, because my mum left, she's from the top of the north, and we were brought up in Punaki, Wellington. You know, she's estranged from her whanau. So I've got to go and find my whanau. How will I do that when this happens? How will whanau find their father when he's now identifying as a woman? There's no marker. And let me tell you, to get that information about the market, it's like they've locked it up like Fort Knox. There's a huge process to find out a change has happened. So it's legalising a lie. It is. It's, it's, it's taken a social nicety and turned it into a legal nightmare. Trannies I've known all my life, if you listen to one of my submissions, you hear me talk about Sandy when I, I think I'm seven or eight and our house was on fire and I was inside and Sandy come and got me out. And he's a big hulking six foot something bloke. But we knew him as Sandy and we called him Sandy and what have you. I've known trans identifying men all my life until now. They never, ever said 
they were women. They never believed they'd change sex till this push. And I know they're not down with it. The schism between the LGBs and yes. the TQIA++ crew. But most homosexuals, gays and lesbians, they are so not down with this. No, we're not. We need the LGB without the T. And as for Wee Hongi saying that this is proof, it isn't proof. When you show a homosexual couple, that is no way is that proof of trans ideology. It's, it's not proof. It's proof of homosexuality. And like I said, why are you talking about how our two Puna had sex? So yeah. let's take it back to community because, of course, it's now we're at this place now that this rubbish has got to stop. Part of the reason Reality Check Radio exists is to get voices like yours out to the, the wider public. It always comes back to, as you said, your stories. I mean, I'm from a very large extended family. My grandfather was one of 13. It's yes. um, And my other side of the family is also very large. It is important, I think, to have... And regardless of whether you're Māori or Pākehā or in it, you need to know where you come from. And yes. I think there has been that disconnect. So for people who are hearing this and they're thinking this is absolute insanity, what are some of the resources that, that you think that they can go and have a look at or some of the things coming up on the horizon that they may need to be aware of? Well, we've got the UN at the moment. We're going to submit on it, of course, and about um, Indigenous peoples and this gender identity, you know, because this is coming from the most high, the UN and Rothblatt, like if Resist Gender Education New Zealand are awesome. They've got so much information. Speak Up for Women has a lot of information on their website. Um, well, there's us, of course, but we don't have a website because we're for Maori. Um, there's Lava, who have been around since the 70s. You know, New Zealand is very lucky. We've got some indefatigable women in the background for Jan Rivers, Mark Kuno. These women just type public good as Jan Rivers, and it was Jan Rivers that was quoted in the um, Herald because New Zealand is prescribing off-label these puberty blockers at 10 times the rate of the UK. Now, 10 times the rate of the UK, and the UK, the UK is all over this stuff. And through lockdown, they did perform these surgeries. Right, to date, now I've got two stats, either they've done 16 or they've done 22 sex reassignment surgeries. We're getting youth being prescribed these medications, believing that puberty is an illness and that they can opt out of it. So what we're doing is we're giving these youth a chemical lobotomy because puberty is the time where we, you know, I know at toddlerhood we do that, you know, attachment and deattaching. But when we come to puberty is when our cognitions and all that critical thinking and that comes in. And these drugs are stopping it and you can never get it back. They are not reversible. I know that, that in the What is a Woman documentary, one of the th points that they wanted to make, the obstetrician and gynaecologist that spoke there and her name just escapes me, but she, as she said, they claim you can turn this on and off with these, you know, these euphemisms, puberty blockers. I mean, from what I understand, Lupron was the drug that they use for chemical castration. I mean, it's what I they still gave. do. You can't sort of turn this stuff on and off. And it astounds me that they still allow this drug to be used off-label 
Whereas for, say, in endometriosis, it's a very short-term for precocious puberty, it's short-term use. But suddenly, with this new trans medicine, which is a bit of an oxymoron, they're giving it long-term. And it's really, really sinister, Marie, because they're trying to get kids younger and younger. Mm. And if they get them before Tanner Stage 2, they will never have healthy sexual function, ever. They'll never have orgasms. They'll never have healthy sexual function. And and I think that's a bit of a mean thing to take off people who don't have the choice. I spoke to Helen Houghton last week and she she was talking about how early this is creeping into schools. As you said, these puberty blockers have to block prior to puberty. How on earth can you expect children to make such radical, life-changing decisions without often parental consent at this stage in their lives. It just beggars belief. Children cannot consent. Because I I think about my people all the time, Marie, and it's just, oh, and and I think about Nanny, okay? Nanny has her moko because the parents are in jail. The nanny's generation, they're used to, you know, know the Pākehā knows best girl, we've got to do it. So Nanny listens to the school. And transes that starts with the social transition, which social transition is changing their name and letting them dress in the opposite sex's gear and treating them like the opposite sex. Now, I don't know if New Zealanders know, but your child can go to school with Samantha, spend all day as Sam and come home and be Samantha again. And the parents do not have to be told. So I don't think people know this. And well, now they do if they're listening. So Nanny's done this to her two moko. They've been transed and they've been put on the puberty blockers. Mum and Dad get out of jail. See, this has happened, right? So there is a fraction right there. What have you done? But I got told to. You go to the education, every department is saturated and captured. And so Nanny's done this. Then when Nanny wakes up and finds out it's not real, where is she going to take this? The guilt, too. The guilt, it's dreadful. It really is Because with Nanny doing that, she has severed her whakapapa. Those kids will not, they're they're rendered sterile. Mm. Northland DHB, I know they're not DHBs, but anyways, Northland DHB is harvesting sperm of the people they're putting on puberty blockers. Northland DHB is sending out binders to young girls under the plastic surgery budget. Northland Trust gave the Rainbow Hub in Waikato $800,000. At the same time, they gave, was it 15 to Search and Rescue, 10 to Youth Line. Now, Youth Line and Search and Rescue, to me anyway, they're institutions in New Zealand. They're well-known, they're well-oiled in what they do. And But they got like 10 and 15. And then we just had a cyclone, all that, all the weather bombs and cyclone Gabriel. Not a pronoun was lost in that, you know. And, I wish that had gotten washed away. Hey, also, not only that, but there has not been one rainbow crew in the clean-up efforts. You're with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I am talking to Di Landy. I'll speak about the Rawl Foundation. Now, uh, Rawl was a New Zealand gay pilot in our armed forces in the Air Force. He's a homosexual. He ended up committing suicide, but he left the legacy and it was for homosexuals. That's been taken now by the Rainbows. The government gave it a million dollar 
endowment in 2019 and then another 800,000 in 2021. So as we've got all this money for the rainbow, but Northland has kids eating out of rubbish bins, quite regular. Northland, well, everywhere's got a um, pee problem, but Northland in particular, like the East Coast, the poverty is grinding poverty. Mm. You know, once Māori get their land back and go on their land, they're not allowed to do anything with it. You can't raise loans, nothing. You, you can't do anything but live on it. You know, I'm talking grinding poverty. It's happening here, but they're giving all these hundreds of thousands of dollars to this rainbow. You know, like I say, we're from Punaki, and I was brought up in Porirua. I'm a Porirua girl. They've got a house in Porirua where youth can go, all our PI and Māori kids can go there and pretend to be trannies and everything's supplied. And why Tangarua? They've probably got one in Otara as well. You know, our youth are looking. They're looking for belonging. They're looking for that afi and everything. And, and youth, how are they going to resist the love bombing, the social likes, the acceptance? Because kids that go against it, and this was um, Kelly J. Keane who said this, are committing social suicide. Yeah. Oh, that is so true. I just I talked about this with Helen. You have dropped more truth bombs than a weather bomb during a cyclone <laughs> die. I am so thrilled that you were able to give us your time today. And I know that um, you're you, welcome Mary. back anytime. Thank you so much for all the hard work that you are doing. I think it is incredibly important. If you want to find Di's article, uh, so it's Di Landy, the article was in Quillette magazine. May 4th was when it was uh, dropped, so do look that up. Uh, that's Quillette, Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.com. Uh, thank you very much. I really do appreciate the time you've spent with us today on Reality Check Radio. Namahi Marie, thank you for having me. Stay with RCR, Marty Gibson will join me with Media Matters, our take on what's happening in the news across the past week here on Counterculture. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. You're with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and joining me now for Media Matters. Good morning, Marty. Good morning, Marie. How are you doing? I am well, but it's been a pretty tough week around the country this week. Yeah, it's it's been awful, hasn't it? There's uh, we're just still uh, finding out about the extent of the loss of life in the Lofa Hostel fire, and uh, yeah, two dead children, aged one and four, in Northland. Of course, the the uh, young people lost in the caving tragedy. Mm. Yeah, that's been a really tough week for Northland this week, I have to say. It's yeah. and it and it is tough, you know, when you look at all the other things that go on out there, particularly in light of the budget tomorrow, sometimes it brings it back home, doesn't it? That there are real people out there and they're hurting and uh, that hurt is very real. Yeah, uh, and, and I guess it's always a challenge to ascribe equal value to each human life. And there are a lot of people who lose their lives that we don't hear about and some we hear more about. But every loss of life is a, is a tragedy and uh, yeah, hopefully makes us all be a bit nicer to each other. Let's start talking about uh, the budget, shall we? Yes, let's start with the budget. It is going to be pivotal for Robinson, I think, this year. Being an election year, the spotlight is on. If any opposition party is worth its salt, one of the things that they can highlight with any elements of the budget is the lack of achievement 
I mean, is there a scorecard, an achievement scorecard for every other budget? This is the sixth budget. I mean, Mm. have we scored budgets one through five? Has there been a pass or fail rate with those? I would say that there's probably been more fails than passes. I'm looking at it thinking, what is going to be different to this budget? Lots of big lofty promises, a bit of fiscal sugar thrown around. I do think he's going to throw some belt tightening in there because he just he will need to. I think he's got pressure from the Reserve Bank to do so, but it's anyone's guess, isn't it? The economist Cameron Bagri was quoted in the Sunday Star Times article on uh, the budget saying, if you look at the track record of the government over the last five years, every budget has been a bigger budget than what was anticipated because they haven't been able to keep their hands off the loot. And, uh, you know, we get back to that uh, comparison I made before about a Marxist student politician being given a credit card. You know, you're hardly surprised when they're not responsible with it. Do you think he will go hardcore this year, that he will do a spray and pray with the cash to try and buy some votes? I mean, this is the infuriating thing, isn't it? That you know that he's not thinking what's good for the country. He's thinking what's going to... Keep my uh, job. Keep, yeah, my seat on the ninth floor, whatever it is. Oh, I thought you were meaning a seat at Bellamy's. Okay, you know, the seat on the ninth floor. (laughs) Yep, good. It's incredibly cynical and... uh, I've been looking a lot at the size of the public service. It's a bit of a bugbear of mine. And I heard David Seymour quoted on uh, Mike Hosking. He said that the public sector's grown by, I think he said, 14,000 employees. And I, so I did a bit of digging in that. And everyone's using skewed data. But the thing that's constant in the review of the budget is just a lack of fortitude in terms of being able to say, well, look, you know, if we had to start again, could we do it with less than 395,000 people working in the public sector, not counting private contractors? That number again, 395,000. Yeah, that's from publicservice.gov.nz. I'd love to know how many of those are outside what I would call frontline public service. So for me, frontline public service are doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, people who are actually directly public facing, Yeah. you know, everyday people facing. If you skim that number out of it, how many of those are in the back rooms? We never talk about about trimming public service. It's always, ah, well, you, you want less teachers, do you? <laughs> There's so much fat to cut before you get to uh, to the teachers or the police or the fire service. I don't think anyone, you know, everyone wants effective teachers, although you could argue for charter sorts mm-hmm. being a lot um, more effective. The um, thing with, with growing a public service, it's a bit like what's going on in the United States and having these open borders that people are flooding across. By bringing more and more people into the public service, you're essentially growing your voter base because the last thing you want to do is to have all of these people that you now employ, but you could potentially not be employing if you're going to be making cuts to the public service. And the monologue today, I've just had this thing in my head ringing all week. It's like a, an earworm in a song about comfort and how we've become comfortable with life as a generalisation. And yes, there are people out there in discomfort. And I think what brought it home for me is what's been going on here in the Bay in terms of so many people displaced from the cyclone. And yet the support and care and compassion shown by New Zealanders for those people is not actually getting to them. It's getting snarled up with all of these people in these sort of backroom jobs. And even within non-governmental organisations like Red Cross, for example, who is 
headed up by Sarah Stewart Black. I think she was civil defence from memory, and I think she cropped up with the volcanic uh, eruption. So this is someone who was a very high functioning public servant that is now running this organisation with Red Cross. You know, we've got people hurting. We've got old people in East Valley literally digging out silt with their hands, not getting any support. The money is not getting to them. The money that was raised from the lotto is not getting to these people. Yeah, We're there was some some comment. I'm struggling to find it a little bit, but someone said, oh, you know, nobody doubts that the people involved, uh, you know, have the best intentions. Yes, but the, the the road to hell was paved with those. Yeah. Well, I, I even think that's giving them a little more too much credit. I think a lot of people do cynically run not-for-profit. You know, if you look at the figures of what actually gets to where it's, you know, what tugs at people's heartstrings to donate money, it's it's not unusual for it to be 5%. Mm. No. You know, just like the tax, you know, if, if, when you pay tax and that tax ends up in a beneficiary's household, uh, there's all sorts of uh, drag and inefficiency that reduces the uh, sum involved from when it's taken forcefully off people to when it ends up in somewhere else. And that's, mm. again, you know, that um, workforce of 395,000 people. And you know, the other telling thing about that figure is of those employees in the central government sector comprise about 88% of public sector employees, while the other 53,200 or 12% are employed in local government. And that's something Oliver Hartwich often talks about. He says, Germany's central government's smaller than New Zealand's. You know, this was another thought that I had after talking about what, you know, we'd do if we were national. What mm. I would like to see is uh, very well-planned devolution of power back out to the regions. Almost uh, a Swiss-based system. Yeah, yeah. I'd like each one to have their own plan. Uh, you know, one of the figures I often trotted out was that in the 10 years before I left Gisborne, that region of less than 50,000 people, I think, had had $10,000 million from central government, which is $10 billion. When you say $10,000 million, you kind of see it mm. stacked up a bit more. And in that 10 years, as far as I could tell, very little changed and quite a few things got worse. It's impossible to spend $10 billion without having something good happen to talk about. So, yeah. yeah. Oh. That, I have to admit that number is almost like, you know, with the budget coming up, how many bureaucrats does it take to change a light bulb? Obviously 395,000. It yeah. will be interesting to see what he does. I will be watching it with interest because... It is that level of comfort. I talked about it in monologue, and I think you're right. There is a lot of people out there that are starting to hurt, and they're starting to wonder, well, why am I hurting? Where is this hurt coming from? What do we do to, to make it stop? And whether that be disaster relief, and this is what voters, you know, coming up October 14, I'm still undecided. I'll put that out there. I think it will be sorted in terms of local candidate, but party vote, I'm I'm an open book at this stage. Yeah, I'd have I, to say I am too. And after yeah. seeing uh, David Seymour um, be so rude to the young man who was asking about the mandating of experimental gene therapy uh, and say, finishing, dismissing him by saying, no one cares about you, mate. I'm going to struggle to to vote for him, despite the fact that I like a lot of their policy. For the first time ever, I think I'm going to become a single issue voter, and I've never done that before. And that for well, me is is, is a, a strategy. 
the Bill of Rights and respecting the Bill of Rights and who is going to actually uphold the New Zealand Bill of Rights uh, for all its citizens. And at this stage, that to me is going to be the single issue because we know that the current lot, none of them stood up for the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Not one. David Seymour instructed all his MPs that they weren't to go and talk to the people who are protesting that. I have a real hard time with uh, with that. Classic Liberal Party that uh, believes in mandatory um, experimental gene therapy. Yeah. I think you really hit, hit on the cord in terms of taking everything back local. That is where this is going to start. It's the groundswell of people. As you're, you're right, I think local governance is actually, they have stripped power away from local governance. It's a fool's errand. Local mm. government is a fool's errand because it doesn't get the funding and it has to, I mean, if you've ever been on a board that works for the health system, you spend all your time just scrabbling around for money and connecting the dots and very little time actually thinking, well, what would we like to achieve? And, and I'm sure a lot of people in central government think that. And before I left, actually, I wrote an article about what the East Coast should do if it hypothetically had an, uh, elected a um, an independent candidate who was there to represent the East Coast. You know, you, you could quite easily, if you did that, could do all sorts of interesting things, particularly if you had a billion dollars a year to play with. You could have, there's no reason you couldn't have the vast majority of your kids literate. You could really make some work on stopping fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You could replant rivers. You could do all that stuff that, you know, those eye-watering sums of money could do. And I guess that's um, the tough situation you get to, isn't it? It's not accidental that none of the stuff's getting done. The belief I think New Zealanders had after the 2020 election, where, oh, but Labour is good in a crisis, so we will reward them for this. Well, I'm sorry, we've had a number of crises already this year, and you just need to take a look at the lead issue, uh, the lead story in the Sunday Star Times uh, to tell you, you know what? No, they're not. They certainly have completely fluffed this flood relief issue. I really do believe it's just an absolute shit show. And and I just hope people do not reward them again. But the polls, there's an absolute whisker with those, isn't there? I mean, we've had, what, four polls out in this last week? Three of them were quite concurrent. And then there was the one outlier, which was Read Research uh, TV3 poll, was sort right. of the, the one outlier. Who is to believe pollsters? But I have to say, we are certainly heading for a case where a very, 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 very small minority of people will be dictating the outcome for the majority of New Zealand. Again, you know, we've talked about this, but the, the big take-up from, from that, and this is in the uh, Thursday's New Zealand Herald, um, while the centre-right would be in a position to form a government, Prime Minister and Labour leader Chris Hipkins continues to prove far more popular than Luxon. Hipkins had held steady as preferred PM on 26%, while Luxon was at 20%, up from 19%. Act leader David Seymour had dropped to 6% from 9%. But here's where it gets juicy. Hipkins' net favourability score was positive 22%, six points lower than last month and down 11 points on his March peak of positive uh, 33%. Luxon, meanwhile, was at negative 7%, meaning more people gave him an unfavourable rating than favourable. And remember here, we're talking Chris Hipkins, who objectively has tits for hands. Like everything he did when he was, you know, in the five years he was in government as a minister, he fluffed. You know, his list of failures is... Education, health, what else did he fluff? There was, there's a list. Oh, there was a great like thing a... by... Um, 
by uh, David Seymour, actually, just excoriated him. Yeah, really just tore him to bits and said, look, if you've got a business, don't let this guy be a director because mm. you'll, you'll go bankrupt. Yes, with the polls, other than the fact that a very small percentage of people could be responsible in creating the next government in terms of decision making, is, as you said, with those net gains and losses, well, actually both of those leaders had losses from the previous polls to this poll in terms of net favourability. This to me, is this a signal that Kiwis are going, hmm, we don't quite like the meat and potatoes that's on the plate. What else is here? What else is on offer? Yeah, the no frills and the guy on a $500,000 salary eating sausage rolls and being a man of the people. I've watched Matt King with interest. I think he lacks gravitas for what he's saying, which is that the government have cynically done what they did around COVID. Uh, I think he's still sort of in national politician, hail fellow, well met mode. But he's got some great people involved. The lady who's uh, represented for, in the Bay of Plenty here, Kirsten Murphy, I know personally. And she is one of the sharpest people I've met in terms of she's a lawyer and has, has written repeated, say, affidavits to to um, to government. So so has, has given them data that's in, impeccably referenced so they know and her latest, um, her latest uh, one that she wrote shows clearly that even when both Luxon and, well, it was Ardern at the time, but Hipkins also, when they were saying the best way to keep your community safe and slow the spread is, is, um, is the vaccination, they knew that the data showed it didn't slow transmission or stop the spread. Uh, but she's also submitted papers, you know, that, that were obtained under uh, the Information Act that show that the focus groups and the marketing people thought that that was the best way to get people to get the jab, to, mm. to protect the family. There was, again, and, and Luxon knew. They all knew. It's interesting, this election, because of, for the first time, I think, the minor parties, there is a big fractionated vote. There is a very disillusioned portion of the New Zealand voter base out there, and they're certainly not seeing any of the five parties that are currently in government are speaking for them. And of course, this week has been the announcement of the new Umbrella Party with Brian Tamaki and co-leader Sue Gray and the New Nation Party, Vision New Zealand and the Outdoors and Freedom Party have all joined together under an umbrella. If you want to know more about uh, what these guys have to say, certainly listen to Paul Brennan. He did an interview with Brian on Monday. Uh, he did a, another interview with Sue Gray yesterday. They're both excellent pieces if you want to know a little bit more. And we will be talking to Matt King as well this coming week. So we will be getting views from all of these minor parties and their leaders, which is great because they're not, I think legacy media will do their absolute best to give them very little airtime. The thing will be is who is currently sitting outside the circle is going to have enough gravitas to pierce that wall and actually get within governance. That's a big question. I think ACT um, will continue to, to rise. And I think, I mean, it depends what National do. I mean, my advice to National would be uh, for Christopher Luxon to say, hey, look, I'm going to step down as leader. I'll be deputy leader and I'll focus on policy to get us out of the mess we're in and to a brighter future, while either Erica Stanford or... Um, oh, you do have a fond spot for Erica, don't you? 
it's just refreshing to me that I, I, uh, it wasn't because of misogyny that I didn't like Dialita. It was because she was incompetent. Just rolled turds and glitter all day. I think Erica Stanford's got a, a lot more substance to her, and I, I think uh, she'd be a great representative for New Zealand. It would, it would um, yeah, it would be the old um, little manoeuvre. And I mm. think also Luxon would, you know, save mana by initiating that himself, as Little did. So yeah. what's the deputy leader's name? Nicola Willis. I really like Nicola Willis too. I think she's great, but they're operating on the game plan that's that's got them seeing them going negative now and that's going to give them a blip in the polls but the lethargic attitude of New Zealanders to the political parties comes from a, a lack of vision and a lack of yeah the lack of feeling that someone's got a plan to to make life better you know the cynical part of me and it's a, a growing part says that's deliberate you know because disillusioned people with no purpose are easier to control. If people want to listen to some other political commentary on this, definitely listen to the political roundtable that was Friday. So if you go back to realitycheck.radio under Paul Brennan's show, the political roundtable, which was Olivia Pearson, Cam Slater, Cam Slater and, and Chris, and Chris Trotter. Trotter, was brilliant. Olivia oh. Pearson summed up what you were just saying beautifully, where she said, these men think to appear for, to women voters, you need to sort of be all soft and cuddly and lovely. She said, no, we want to see a strong leader. That's what we want to see. Hipkins leaves me cold. He's a wet lettuce leaf on a on a grey day. I just yeah. be really interesting once he gets out of his leadership position. It'd be disillusioning for him to see how Maori affections for him uh, dry up pretty quick because he's not the guy who typically uh, has a great time with Maori, especially at school. He would have had his head flushed down the toilet a few times. And I've just had Dailandi on, and we talked Maori politics. As you've alluded to in previous weeks, there is a conservative Maori vote out there who are increasingly getting more disillusioned. They were the traditional Maori voter that often voted uh, Maori Party. They really saw their values reflected with um, Tariana Turia and Peter Sharples. That is now no longer the case. Mm. And they are feeling cast adrift. In those leaders, you normally see the the you know the, the tougher talk and and the anger at injustice or, or, and other issues balanced out by some charm and sweetness. I I I never see that in Marama Davis. She just appears angry to me all the time. Same with Mecca Fightery. I don't I don't see that Marama Davidson has never grown up outside what I call high school activism politics. Yeah. It was really funny. I read uh, again my old mate Shane Tapo. Actually I, I don't I've never met him but he um it's so funny when they almost connect the dots when it suits them. He said uh Faitiri has implied that she was being suppressed because she is wahini Māori, but that doesn't hold water. Yes, wahini Māori are often treated badly in our institutions and overlooked for promotion, but that doesn't mean that every time Faitiri doesn't get what she wants, that it's because of racism. Still, I draw that out more broadly to Māori as well. If Faitiri wants someone to blame, she should look at herself. Her standing has never recovered from her alleged assault of a staffer in 2018. That action and the temperament it highlights is surely why she did not get a promotion to Cabinet. Mm. They get so close. They do. Speaking of ministers that get so close, 
uh, Asha Viral was on Q&A last week and Paula Bennett wrote about it in her opinion piece and it was around the Pharmac funding because this, with budget coming up, this will be watched with interest. Pharmac is one of those entities that on paper is a really good idea. It helps save us money. It means that they can negotiate as a block to get good costs on drugs. Exactly. And it's a great idea. However, when it comes to new drugs, they're very, very slow. And when new drugs come to the market, they're always more expensive. So uh, the way the pharmaceutical industry works in terms of regular drugs is they have what they call a patent period. And so that's when a drug is released. It's released under its brand name. It's usually with one of the pharmaceutical giants, which has pulled hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars into R&D and testing supposedly, then the price tag gets attached to that drug, the drug rolls out to market, and there is a period of time where no one else can actually replicate that drug in any way, shape or form. There is a list called the 200 Essential Medicines list that's been around since time immemorial. When I worked in pharmacy, it was something that we had to learn. Apparently, they don't teach it now because there are a lot of new drugs that are now around. But what it does mean is those drugs are still core and they work. We have an over-reliance on those drugs in this country and we're a bit slow on the uptake and bringing the new ones in. And an example of that is the Medicine Gap, which is actually run by Rachel Smalley. And she has found that 130 of the modern medicines that are currently available, only 41. So that's 130 mm-hmm. modern medicines outside that 200 list. Only 41 are available via Pharmac. And there have been campaigners like Malcolm Mulholland and Fiona Tolich who have been working tirelessly and really emotionally to try and get drugs funded. And the blood, sweat and tears that many of these um, people, have, advocates have to do to get these drugs funded is massive and usually at huge personal cost. Viral, on the other hand, said these people... The Minister Aisha Viral insinuated on Q&A on Sunday are being paid by pharmaceutical companies to campaign for funding for a medicine. She said pharmaceutical companies may influence those campaigns and they made it sound like these tireless advocates are on the take. Wow. So close. So I know. Close. It's just the, the irony, Aisha. Really? years and years and years to get to $20 billion in profits. It, it took a couple of years for them to get to 40 over COVID. That's uh, Sunday Star Times in the opinion, Paula Bennett, and it, the headline, Viral plays the person, not the issue. Is it Herald on Sunday? Is it Herald on, oh, sorry, Herald on Sunday. There was some really good analysis of, of the budget in both Sunday Star Times and the New Zealand Herald on Friday, actually. It was a really good article by Matthew Hooten, who's... I always, I always find his take on things is interesting, even though you know, as a political operative, he's always got his own angle on things. He was talking about Grant Robertson's track record of bribing people with their own money or with money that he's borrowed against the future labour of their children, which is what we're doing. Uh, he said famously, Robertson was the beehive staffer most associated with interest-free student loans. Clark's 2004 Working for Families program and Cullen's 2005 KiwiSaver scheme, including its $1,000 per head handout, which together Labor credits with beating Don Brash's National in 2005. And he almost you know, was involved with Helen Clark. They really drove down national support in the months leading up to the election. So this isn't his first rodeo. How uh, many more cards can they play, though, on that student vote? Because, of course, the card that got played 
was it in 2017 was the first year free for new, new tertiary students? Again, I think we're dealing with the problem that there are enough people who, we'll who drink won't read between the lines mm. and understand it. And, and again, there's a big gap left by nationals, just boneheaded failure to wrest that crown of kindness off labour. If they did that, they'd be way ahead in the polls. All national cares about is money. All national cares about is money. You were talking earlier in terms of results, you know, in terms of Hipkins, but you look at the interest-free student loans and then follow that up, you know, several years later when they're back at it again uh, with a fees-free first year. What are the enrolments in our tertiary institutions looking like? Yeah. They're absolutely tanking. And it's not just international students. Um, data out yesterday was stating that uh, international tertiary students are starting to return to universities, but they're not returning to politics and they're not returning to high schools. But every university, with the exception of Canterbury, saw a stark reduction of Kiwi young people going into tertiary education. Tipukinga is an absolute dog's breakfast. I mean, that should have been a merger that should have never have taken place. And who is suffering here? The kids. Well, I mean, that's the tip of the iceberg as well. When university enrolments are trending downwards because they've become so hopelessly corrupted with Marxism, but also because the schools are so hopeful, hopelessly ineffective at... Preparing them. Yeah, at preparing kids for um, any sort of academic rigour. And, I mean, luckily, university demands far less academic rigour now. There was a really good analysis in uh, the Sunday Star Times, but, again, it was pretty... No one was really saying anything terribly groundbreaking. Just they wanted R&D tax credits and cyclone recovery. We want to, you know, Brett O'Malley, we want to see a responsible budget that funds core services, benefits us all, enables innovation and gives business a pipeline of skilled, work, skilled workers. We also want to see a budget that supports modernising the New Zealand economy prepares us for carbon neutrality and ensures we're internationally competitive. They're all singing from the same sheet, really. I'd love to see a budget that would actually show accountability for every single dollar that's been spent into the public service. There's an well, interesting got concept. For that, didn't they? they did. You know, oh, how much is that going to cost? I don't know about that. It's like, well, but again, National still absolutely refuses to talk about borrowing. I don't know why that is. Nicola Willis was saying, she said, oh, the government's spending an extra billion dollars a week. Their tax takers has gone up. You know, they're taking an extra $100 million off New Zealanders. It's like, well, there's still $900 million that you're not talking about there, Nicola. That's coming from the printing presses. Of course, also this week was released, was the letter from the 97 of the wealthiest New Zealanders. But when you actually dive down into that letter, they're not actually that wealthy, saying they wanted to pay more tax. And this is after, of course, the IRD releasing their report saying the top wealthiest people in New Zealand pay the least tax. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate over whether or not they pay enough tax. However, I did see, I actually dived into the fluffy parts of the paper, which I know is somewhere that you would never have gone. And this is actually in the spy section on the Herald on Sunday. And it's uh, Vera Alves and Alves, Alves, Alves. She starts the piece. I knew we were into trouble here. Today, I'm going to take a break about talking from the Kardashians and whatever else the internet is talking about and rebelling against this column's own tagline. The headline is some rich people are worth listening to 
And she says, so let me, a person who is not entirely sure she knows what the word inflation really means, or who hyperventilates at the mere thought of logging onto her online bank account, be the voice of these unheard rich people saying something I never thought I'd say. For God's sake, listen to rich people. Remember, people, these people vote. Okay, Vera has a vote. Oh, dear. There was all sorts of advice like that. There was also the 23-year-old sex therapist telling us how to have better sex lives. If you can't have a great sex life when you're a 23-year-old woman, you're uh, you're missing something. So amongst the people in this letter, Les Mills, uh, CEO Philip Mills, EcoStore founder Malcolm Rands and um, Dame Susan DeVoy, I also know Ian Taylor was in that list. A number of people said, well, if they want to pay more tax, they can pay more tax. Well, Vera answers that because she said tax laws as they stand do not allow voluntary tax payments like that, as said by an IRD spokesperson. But this is the challenge that I have. If people like that claim that they can be spending more money to make a better New Zealand and they want to do it by paying more tax, well, for starters, if you're a successful business person, you will know that the single worst person to manage your money are the current lot that is there right now. I wouldn't, if I had my choice, I wouldn't be giving Grant a single cent. I would much rather every cent of tax I pay go towards charitable or direct community organisations where I live and actually see things happen. Mm. If all of these people are that serious about wanting to give more money for New Zealand because they can, you know what? Pop down to Esk Valley, guys. Pop down to Esk Valley, bring down relief, bring down diggers, hire an army of people and dig out the bloody silt that is still sitting there and has been sitting there since the 14th of February. Put your money where your mouth is. Stop talking with these weasel words. Stop talking with these vacuous letters and virtue signaling to New Zealanders because we're sick of it. Yeah, Absolutely that, sick of you'd it. You'd think that we'd be hearing, you know, that they'd be doing better PR on the charities that are set up by all the socialists in the Beehive at the moment who hate people who earn $300,000 a year. You know, you'd think they'd want to shrug off that morally burdensome cash but you never hear about it i would suggest it's because it doesn't happen the working class can kiss my ass i've got the boss's job at last as the song used to go sorry to get randy people but i just i get to a point where i just look at this and think what are they saying maori dum this hui more doi well you know speaking of maori dum never comes up that maybe um iwi businesses should pay tax you know there's some pretty wealthy people and uh in those, but I guess, again, it's it's less morally burdensome money. This is Media Matters with Marie and Marty. And Marie, I'm feeling a bit ranty today, so I'm sorry, everybody, for being Ooh. so ranty. I know, I haven't, this is the first time I actually had proper wee ranty rant. I have got my ranty pants on today. Now that I've had a bit of a rant about virtue signalling, let's sort of head into uh, a little bit of cultural appropriation, shall we? There's always a good place to be. Yeah. Sunday Star Times, so yoga teachers and studios in Aotearoa are facing accusations of appropriating and capitalising on the ancient Hindu practice. This is essentially a piece about a yoga practitioner who happens to be of Indian descent getting very, very upset with, uh, how did she define them? Uh, Others, on the other hand, have taken route of appropriating and capitalising on yoga, perhaps because it belongs to everyone rather than appreciating it and giving it the due respect to the people and culture that it comes from. I could get ranty about this. You can get ranty about this this because you have spent time in India. Journalism fund story. It comes out of Te Herenga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington. 
again, it's it's almost calculated to cause division. I mean, I'm looking at this, seeing is this a way for the of this yoga instructor, Reha Kuma, well, is she trying to drive more people to her yoga studio um, because she's got competitive pressures by people that she doesn't believe are culturally worthy in her view? I mean, that's me being cynical from a business perspective. I don't know. But the fact that surely anything that promotes well-being should yeah. be encouraged in this country. I work in the hand knitting industry. It was the Egyptians and the Babylonians that started that. I mean, am I going to get up in arms because I knit and we're going to see Egyptians coming out saying, no, you can't do hand knitting because you're culturally appropriating what was our craft? Yeah, no, it's, it's bullshit and it's got to stop. It's often the things that are unsaid, isn't it? I mean, this is out of Victoria University. This is the most pressing thing that they can come up with their public interest journalism fund. You know, there's another article in the, I think it was it was in the Weekend Herald about this woman who suffered the most dreadful sexual abuse from her stepfather from the age of three. Now, that wasn't paid for by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. But I have a friend who's been going through a similar journey, and I asked her about it, and she said that the system's, well, she said the system's effed. If you really did want to do something where people's lives are, being horribly impacted, you'd really look at getting kids out of some of these situations and also ensuring that the men who've perpetrated these sort of outrages on children are stopped from continuing to do it. And I saw on Facebook the government's running a program now, which, you know, I can sort of see the logic of it. It's a um, program for people who are minor attracted persons to undergo treatment. So this stuff's coming thick and fast. I know that there's another huge article on transitioning children, you know, trans transgender transitions. And again, this is, there are all these little links, you know. Victoria University was where John Money, the father of gen- gender identity, uh, came from. You never hear about him in all this, but he was a pedophile. He falsified research. He continued to claim that it was successful even after both of the uh, children that he famously experimented on, often sexually taking photos, had killed themselves. There's a lot that we're not said. If, if the government or the media are pointing in one direction, what I'm learning is you've got look to the look other the way. other way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really worth every time we talk about this saying it's nothing against transgender people. You know, it must be, it must be tough. The rottenness that all of this stuff taps into, once you start looking at it, whether it's Foucault and all the rotten stuff he did, or this guy, John Money, it taps into evil often, the political aspect of it. Looking at what's not being said while we're preoccupied with that's really not that important or even affects that many people. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and I had this with my conversation with Naomi earlier in the show, is it's a distraction. A lot of this wokeism comes, I've said it before, I'll say it again, it comes out of affluence. It requires affluence and comfort in order to survive. The minute you take that away, 
it will begin to crumble. It is a distraction. It is a distraction away from what the real economic issues are. It's a distraction away from what the greater issues in terms of our governance is. You know, what is our country signing us up to? What laws are they passing behind closed doors with zero submission time that we're not hearing about? Where is the money going? What are they spending money on? There is a piece, actually something that I just saw recently, a tender that's gone out by the government for a training program. Obviously, the lowest lobbed softball for the disinformation project but it's an, it's an RFP that has gone out for training programs out to New Zealand to teach New Zealanders about how to recognize mis and disinformation right because we can, you know we've got to have those academics uh, activists academics activists, I can never remember, which they are, in a job. I mean, it's just, it's all a distraction. And I think getting back to what we do grassroots, you know what, if you're sick and tired of it, guys, and you're out there and you're looking at the stuff in the paper, and I have to say, I can only do it one day a week because I get too ranty. You've seen my ranty pants today. It's you actually just need to talk to your people around you, talk to your friends and neighbours, talk to your work colleagues, talk to the people within your local community. It's like a ripples in a pond and actually talk about what's really important. I did a, I mean, I've been going down rabbit holes this week, but not the kind that uh, the Disinformation and Misinformation Project would uh, have you believe. I've been going down rabbit holes of, for instance, the World Economic Forum are saying about digital currencies, about what the Reserve Bank what work they've been doing on introducing a digital currency here. And with it, probably if China's anything to go by and if our experiments with identity through COVID are anything to go by, it will come. It will come with a... Social credit system. Yeah, social credit system. Well, they've already tested it out, haven't they? They tested it out from December 21 to April 22. They've already done the the pilot program. Spending more than $10,000 in cash. Surprise, surprise, Europe have as well. It's all in. If you've done anything in terms of banking or business and it's over a certain threshold, the anti-money laundering hoops that you have to jump through now, all in the guise, they say, to prevent crime, which, and I mean, it is utter bollocks, the stuff that Mm. you have to do. And I feel so sorry for the lawyers and the accountants because they're the ones that have been lumped with all of this to do it. And I say to them, at what purpose does this serve? Yeah, well, I mean, you can look at China and find out. China, this is from a website called Strident Conservative. Sounds like you today, uh, actually. (laughs) China doesn't only track spending habits, it controls them. The ultimate goal of digital currency. We We were treated to an example of how this works late last year when the Council of Europe announced plans to launch a digital currency and ban cash payments above 10,000 euros. They're just like, yeah, um, I wonder if they're talking to each other. Under the guise of fighting terrorism and money laundering. Sounds nice until you realise their digital euro comes with spending limits, giving the European Central Bank the ability to restrict how people spend their money. Hmm. Here we go. And so, you know, what you've got to look at, you know, when we're talking about woke most people talk about it as kind of a bit of foolishness. A better way to look at it is that everything that's in the paper, everything that you are discussing on that basis is something that people right up the top of the pyramid want you discussing. Everything that happens generally is something they want happening. And that often offers you a better insight into why things are happening. 
If you want to do something in your local community, and I've been doing it a lot more lately, is that if where I can, I pay cash. So yep. if I'm interacting with a small local business or uh, even just simple things like if I'm popping up for a coffee, I pay cash. To prove that point that we need to maintain control of of our own money and and also to actually the consumer the power of the consumer because of course uh the power of the consumer has been under attack as evil capitalism from our friends in critical social justice but i want to update uh, a story that i've been following here and across the show over the last uh, several weeks and that has been of course the brouhaha with bud light and Bud Light created the single can to celebrate one year of transition for trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, so just uh, released today, Anheuser-Busch, who are the parent company for Bud Light, make changes to the company amid Bud Light boycott. Anheuser-Busch revealed that they are making attempts to change its marketing structure in the midst of the backlash over the Bud Light produced can featuring the transgender activist's face for social media promotion. For the past month and a half, Bud Light sales have taken a nosedive after transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney posted a video in the namesake on the social media writing Bud Light Partner in a caption that, med- that led many to believe the Light Beer was officially partnering with Mulvaney and would launch a campaign with the activist who was a biological male. Uh, so there were several high-profile singers, that, including Kid Rock, that apparently shot up a created Bud Light with a with a machine gun, as you do, because they don't take your guns away over there, as we know. Weeks later, Inhouser Bush, InBev CEO Michael Dukuris, told investors in a call that there was no partnership with Mulvaney, so they're stepping this back, and that the only one can was produced with Mulvaney's face. The subsequent Financial Times interview claimed that the slumping of Bud Light sales was sparked by social media-driven misinformation. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is again, I mean, we've talked about this in an earlier show. It's a desire by elites to make culture downstream from politics rather than the other way around. And you can see, I mean, I read the New Zealand Reserve Bank's Putia uh, Matua, the money father. Interesting. But, you know, they were talking about their response, the response of the public and about 7,000 submissions to their saying, hey, uh, we've had an idea. Hey, how do you guys, how would you like a digital currency? Which, you know, just putting it out there, overwhelming majority of people didn't want one. But you can hear in what they're doing, it's, well, we've got our plans, so we just have to get people on board. Just because we're not PRing it hard enough. But surely digital currencies have actually been around for a while. So what you're actually saying is a government and state controlled digital currency. Because things like... Reserve banks aren't necessarily like the federal reserve is not a government organization now when i learned that 25 years ago it blew my mind i started reading books about it and the nefarious way it was brought in everything's downstream of that as i said earlier everything that you're that we're talking about with all these culture wars you know they've got very very wealthy backers and they do it for a reason and that reason is not to improve the lot of ordinary people far from it yeah so that's why we need to go go local and we need to improve it ourselves. So have you got anything cheerful? Oh, there was a um, 22-year-old patched Mongols gang member arrested with an AK-47 and two banana mags. And it was interesting to read that alongside that wokeness and PC killed police 10-7 because there were too many um, Maori on it. 
You know, so, if I'm talking to Marty, I've got a theory about this, Maria. I'll just tell you quickly. I've so I've got to start a piece now called Marty's Got a Theory About This, but this is thinking Yeah, you know, I mean, I've talked to Marty about this who sort of talk, when they talk about, you know, how the justice system's unfair to Maori. I often say, look, I come from, you know, culturally, I'm a gentleman. I come from that culture where if I'm murderously angry, I lose mana if I show it. So I'll say, well, you know, th- this really isn't working for me at all. I'm, I'm not at all happy about this. Whereas Maori come from a warrior culture where the emphasis is on appearing as murderous and angry as possible. Now, which works better in a routine traffic stop if we've each got an ounce of weed in our glove box? Who's going home and who's going to jail? We might start, as uh, Shane Poe said, talking about mecha fightery, we might want to start looking at this before we move to insisting that the system's racist. There are some cultural aspects of it. Yes, there are. So that was my light thing. Uh, that, that was your light. Right, okay, okay, 47. Good, good, to, good to see that the gun buyback was working so well. Well, yeah, don't, there was that meme where um, Jacinda's hugging uh, Mongrel Mob, Patch Mongrel Mob member saying, don't worry, we only took the guns off the good people. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, again, that feeds into my other theory that governments love anything that makes people demand less freedom and more government. The power goes out. If the supermarket's empty, if the water's not working, you've got all of these ferals with these, well, gee, I, I, you know, if you start firing off a gun like an AK-47, it goes through a couple of houses and goes through anything squishy that's in them. Those guys start kicking off with that sort of hardware. People are going to be asking for less freedom and more government. And you know, a cynical person, as I've become, might say, well, that's exactly what they're... That's why they haven't gone hard on gangs. They're there as the boogeyman. Yes. You've got to have a bad guy in the story. You've got to have a bad guy. Well, I've got something really quick, um, sweet and cute to actually finish things off. The world's oldest dog celebrates its 31st birthday. I bet it was a small dog, was it? I always worry about Actually, surprisingly dog. not. It's about oh. the size of a Labrador, yeah. The world's oldest dog recently celebrated his 31st birthday, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Bobby, a purebred Raffiero de Alenteo, a breed of Portuguese dog, celebrated during a party over the weekend at his home in, in rural Portugal, where he's lived his entire life. More than 100 people attended a very traditional Portuguese party, um, owner Leonel Costa said. Local meats and fish were served up to the 100 guests with extra for Bobby, who only eats human food. A dance troupe also performed with Bobby participating in one of its routines. Costa has owned several old age dogs in the past, including Bobby's mother, Gitta, who lived to the age of 18. However, Costa said he's never imagined any of his dogs would reach their 30s. We see situations like this as the normal result of the life that they have, but Bobby has has been one of a kind. One of the biggest contributing factors to Bobby's longevity is the calm, peaceful environment in which he lives. Bobby's birth date has been confirmed by the Veterinary Medical Service in the town in which he was registered in 1992. Costa, now 38, was just eight years old when Bobby was born. For him, Bobby is a living reminder of his past. So there you go, 31-year-old. Oh, very chums, eh? I know, 31-year-old dog in Portugal. I have to say, my 10-and-a-half-year-old bulldog, um, he ain't going to make 31. <laughs> He's struggling now at 10-and-a-half. Does so he only I eat think- human food? No, he doesn't. No, he'd like to. 
It's, maybe that's the problem. It's be a bit of it. No, that's that's the mastiff. That's the oh. uh, the the, gar- the hundred plus kilo mastiff. That's the garbage guts. But I thought that was quite lovely. Thirty one year old dog. And even oh, actually, oh, New Zealand, yeah, we've just lost our oldest man this week as well. After his what a hundred and seventh yeah. birthday. Thank you so much for this week. Um, we will be chewing into budget next week. That is guaranteed. So make sure you tune in for that. I am sure there's going to be plenty of post-mortem on the budget. And until then, make sure you have a really fantastic week. And thank you, as always, Marty. Stay safe, everybody, and uh, have a great week. Thanks. It's time for the vocabulary word of the week. The vocabulary are words and phrases that have been hijacked by those steeped in the world of critical social justice. This is a word to watch out for this week. Malinformation. A piece of information that is true and factual, but is intentionally conveyed in order to inflict actual harm or cause the imminent threat of actual harm on a person, organisation or country. A recent addition to the vocabulary, having been coined in early 2022, initially it was a synonym for doxing, the release of private information such as where you live, um, a ploy often executed by those steeped in critical social justice. However, in a bid for the state mechanisms to capture speech and control it, it has morphed into a more widely defined phrase of malinformation. By giving it the new broad definition, the term can now be used by those wishing to censor speech, especially speech which is factual and cannot be easily tagged as mis- or disinformation. In other words, when all else fails, you call the truth malinformation to shut the dissenters up. This is going to be a word to watch, as truth has a pesky habit of coming out. I suspect there will be a sharp spike in malinformation. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. Keep the feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text, send your comment to 2057, that number again, 2057. Peter Williams is up next here on Reality Check Radio with insightful commentary and some more great music. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.